Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. What's up, Gypsy Gang? Uh, I'm already losing it. Three-day lockdown. Are you serious? Uh, that's all I'll say on that. Um, if you're like me and you're locked down, um, then maybe listen to this podcast. It'll kill some time. My guest today is the icon, the Chuck Norris of Australian motocross, Jeff Ballard. Uh, I've been wanting to have Jeff on for ages. He's a guy that is obviously super requested to come on this podcast. Uh, I sort of, I guess we say it in the thing, um, but I'm so glad that we waited just a little bit to do this one because um, I've got to spend a bit of time with Jeff over the last couple of years and uh, man, the guy is just the biggest legend and I hope to be everything he is one day. Uh, what I took from this story uh, after listening to Jeff for almost four hours is to just never do shit because of the money. Because it seems like that was a consistent theme through his life. He just always did. Uh, I guess he just always tried to live whatever his version of like the ideal life was. Um, he's a great dude. And in business, it also seemed like he just never did anything for money. He was just always a good dude to people. Um, and he's been rewarded in life, man. He's a super successful businessman um he's a part of the mx store brand now um he's 62 years old and still ripping on a dirt bike in great shape in great spirits so yeah he's just honestly he's the man so um i'm so stoked to get this podcast done with one of australia's um i guess greatest ambassadors for two wheels but before we get into this episode of the podcast just a quick word from our sponsors and look don't do what i did in the last go around of quarantine and just let the manscaping really go uh manscaped has just launched in australia and look we've gone years without using the right tools for the job and you can be one of the first to experience their life-changing products here in australia um yeah look it's important guys I let it go. It's not something I'm going to do again. Um, but having the right tools for the job definitely makes it easier. Uh, that's why Manscaped has redesigned their electric trimmer. The Manscaped engineering team has spent 18 months perfecting the greatest ball hair trimmer 
ever and they've just released the new and improved lawnmower 3.0 trimmer their third generation trimmer features cutting edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming incidents and this is the key thing for me um, with the manscaped products uh, the other thing that i really enjoy is the waterproof technology that allows me to groom in the shower uh, and they've upgraded to a new 7000 rpm motor with quiet stroke technology so you know late night sessions you know what i'm saying you know what i'm saying um, if you're listening to me right now i would love you to experience this firsthand for yourself so it's time to trim that junk of yours and get 20% off plus free shipping while doing it. You can use the code gypsygang at manscaped.com. Your balls will thank you. Your missus will thank you. Your baby mama will thank you. Um, whoever's hanging out in that region that doesn't own the balls that you're trimming, they will be the ones that will thank you. We're also brought to you by the guys at mxstore.com.au. And underneath the MX Store umbrella sits a brand called Ballard's Off-Road. And that brand is one of Australia's most iconic and well-loved brands. Uh, so I figure in this ad read for MX Store, we should talk about Ballard's. My personal favorite product from the Ballard's range, <clears throat> you would have... <clears throat> sorry. Uh, you would have heard me talk about that with Jats and Sam if you listened to the last podcast. Uh, their titanium foot pegs are next level. Basically mandatory for any bike that I own, uh, but they are in such hot demand because they are such good foot pegs that they go out of stock constantly. Uh, MX Store has just done a restock, so if you are like me uh, and you like your feet staying on your bike, then uh, it's a good idea to get in quick before they sell out once again. mxstore.com.au, same day shipping if you order on a weekday before 2 p.m., or you could pop in, do the click and collect thing, whatever way you got to get it done. MX Store, make it easy. Uh, we're also brought to you by the guys at Fist Handwear. You can head to fisthandwear.com, use the code GYPSYGANG, and get uh, 15% off uh, from there. Uh, I think the Gypsy Gang gloves, uh, the Gypsy Tails gloves are available there, but if not, uh, huge, huge huge range of epic gloves um we're also brought to you by the guys at dixon flannel you can head to dixonquality.com.au uh it is definitely flannel season jats was uh rocking a pretty dope flannel uh in the last podcast and uh look pretty much a uh, a big necessity of my wardrobe these days uh, we're also brought to you by the guys at rival ink design co you may have seen the absolute stunner of a TC125 uh, that Rival did a set of graphics for, for Robbie Marshall to go and race the 125 Cup at Stanmore. Uh, we've got a, or Gold Coast Motorcycle Club, I should say. We've got a few new kits coming out uh, with Rival on some projects that we're working on, so pretty excited for that. Uh, if you want to be like us and run the best graphics in Australia, head to Rival Inc. Desire co.com use the code gypsy gang to get 15 percent off uh, also brought to you by the guys at cricks tweed you can go to crickstweed.com.au uh, ask for kyle he's the man fully one of the gypsy gang uh, and also uh, got a 125 that i'm uh, keen to rip with him at some point here soon uh that's it you can subscribe to us on youtube uh gypsy tales podcast and gypsy tales we've got the two channels uh support us by buying merch if you haven't already that's pretty dope if you do that and uh that's it sorry for the long intro 
But uh, this is a banger of an episode with an incredible human, Jeff Ballard. Just like that, Jeff Ballard. Welcome to the Gypsy Tales podcast, mate. Thank you, sir. Just switched nice all, to be here. Switched all official real quick. <laughs> That's the last official thing of this is just the intro. Yeah. Um, so I've been wanting to get you on the podcast for a very long time. You're cool. a, you're Thank a very you. requested uh, a requested guest, but I'm glad that we've waited a while to like honestly people have asked for you to come yeah. on here yeah, s- wow. for like 3 3 Old years now. Guys. Yeah. So uh <laughs> but we didn't really know each other back then. No, but that's true. I'm yeah. lucky enough now to have spent a bit of a time, bit of time yeah, and, uh, and a few things yeah yeah got some <clears throat> got some good rides in and stuff like that and yep. uh and i'm so glad because uh over that time you've become a person where i'm like that there guy there is. yeah that's the guy i want to be <laughs> that's a that is a guy that is living <laughs> his best life well that's pretty true i certainly feel lucky that i've had my life like i've had you know that's for sure yeah and then so uh Last night, you sent me through a, a bit of a blurb um, of, you know, just a, some dot yep. points. What an insane life to, yeah, to have yeah. lived. Like, I'm there, I just sat there reading it last night. Just yeah, going, right. This is crazy. Yeah, well, it was funny because I was going, how does all this podcast stuff work? And, you know, do you, I mean, we know each other, but we don't know well, let's say. And then... Um, yeah, it's like like we sort of thought maybe it's an old school thing, but you know you had to be a bit more organised in the old days because there wasn't mobile phones and everything yeah. wasn't easy, and you used to have to write letters and just be organised. If you said to some guy you're going to meet him somewhere, well that's when you met him or whatever. You yeah, know, you didn't have to just top it up saying hey I'm five minutes late because exactly, it wasn't which is easy. exactly what I did to you today. I was like, hey, yeah, yeah. push this back <laughs> half an hour. You are right, eh? That's a, it's a totally different uh, yeah, way different of getting era, stuff yeah. done. And even I think about that a lot with like maps and things like that. I remember, yep. you know, going, when we were growing up, the first trips that we did up to Cape York, I actually remember my dad with like maps out and, you know, yep. like kind of looking over his shoulder, yeah. looking at maps. And then I remember a couple of times as a kid coming to Brizzy, dad would have to like pick up a Brisbane Rolodex and you know whenever yeah. we'd go see like cousins and shit like that you'd be yeah, looking at, yeah. done we call all of it Gregory's. Done. I think Gregory's was a pretty common term and yeah I mean you were lucky if you had a map sometimes you sometimes you had to just write down info from yeah. you know something but yeah it's different times for sure and uh, you know there's not a lot wrong with now but I feel very lucky that I've been through the era that I have it's been amazing you know many many ways of change and stuff like that so it's that's pretty cool the one thing though that hasn't changed that's probably going to be the theme of this uh podcast is your love of motorcycles just the genuine genuine love yeah, the right. thing that's a right at the middle <laughs> is how much you love riding and yeah. you know the other day this is a perfect example of jeff ballard <laughs> the other day you came to the track with a 350 with the most wacky modern i mean it's almost like pre-modern you know what i mean yeah. like people don't even know what it is yet the front end so yeah. you've got these crazy forks that you are um riding which we'll i'm sure we'll yep. get to i'd like to talk about that at some point okay. but then in the same van you bought a mako 
and you love yeah, both of those yeah, things, yeah. you know? So you <clears throat> you've re- yeah. you have spanned all of these generations, but through it all, yeah, you just yeah. still love riding a dirt bike. Yeah, well, that maker is an 81, and of course, it started a bit earlier than that. But right now, or for a while, the um, my van is my garage, yeah. you know, when I'm up here. Uh, not all the time, but at the moment it is. So, um, you know, and I spent forever running race teams 24 years so you know everything had to be pristine and uh, you know new graphics new all the time and and after 24 years you get a little bit sick of that so now yeah. I'm, now i'm a bit of a grot and my bike stay in the back and you pull them out and filter stay people, dirty. Go, people go wow you haven't cleaned it. i go yeah well there's no inspectors there's no bonus seconds or points for that so i mean sometimes obviously you've got to present and uh, do some maintenance and stuff but it's minimum as much as i can be that way anyway and you, the other thing that I'll say as well to kind of extend on what I was I said before is you still would have done the most laps out of everybody the other day on that day where you bought an old bike, a new bike, and you, yeah, were, the, you yeah. were the frother that did the most <laughs> laps. Yeah, yeah. Well, I like doing laps and uh, I can still, you know, surprisingly in many ways I can moto and I can, I've even done 45 minute motos just seeing if I can still do it. I'm uh, bones ache a bit, especially my knees, but... Yeah, it's sort of something. Um, I don't think I use as much energy as a lot of guys, or something like that. You know, mm. there's something that's working for me. So, but it's fun. I like that sort of thing. I, you know, try and try and do a few laps each time, and depends on setup and depends on the track and different things. But when I when I like it, like the conditions where when we were riding, it was easy to just keep going. You know, loved it. It that was a good day of riding. It was. It was a beauty. Yeah. We uh we had like the little group text going afterwards. And that was that was one of those days where I definitely I don't know whether it's like six foot and offshore, you know, like the yeah. the, the weather was good, the track was good, yep. the crew was awesome. Yep. And uh and I guess it's crazy that in, you know, fifty plus years well, fifty years this year of holding an MA license. Yeah, yeah. You still true. haven't got sick of it. No, you know, it's um it's pretty easy to not get sick of it in my opinion because it as long as your body's hanging in there and you're enjoying it you know what else are you going to do i've i've you know had goes at other few other things and you know nothing comes close for me anyway of just getting on a bike and you know like you're a surfer i've never been but you know if the waves are shit then you don't ride i mean you don't um surf you know and then you know depending if it's snow skiing or you know water skiing it's got to be you can you know it might be a bit crappy with dust or you know i love mud but you just you can do it you can just keep doing it so it's a it's a great sport and it's you know physical enough to to know you've ridden and feel good and just keep doing it yeah it's hard to stop doing it more than it's hard to keep going at the moment anyway so you had a pretty interesting <clears throat> start to your riding career so you were born in avalon yeah and then you moved uh <clears throat> into the blue mountains and yep. which you were not a fan of initially no. but then you found a dirt bike yeah. and isn't it crazy when you look <laughs> all the way backwards you're like wow that this thing this like lifelong obsession business sport everything you know social everything just started way back then everything yeah yeah so parents in a way it was um i guess it's typical for a lot of parents who don't understand and or even if they do understand they're a bit nervous of oh, riding these bikes you know yeah um so 
Yeah, I was just a kid who lived at Avalon and then at nine years old or whatever, moved to the mountains and, you know, it's new schools and nervous and whatever and just mates aren't there. So just wasn't enjoying it. Had to, I went from living in Avalon to having to milk a cow every morning and um, just a little farm my parents bought, you know. And um, so it was a big change and I really didn't like it that much, you know, and I, th- I can't remember. I mean, you you know, it's hard when it's this many years. I remember certain things really well, but um, anyway, it was it was a year or two until one of my mates said, hey, I got this bike and let's go, um, let's go for a ride in the afternoon. And there was fire trails everywhere and still is to some extent. And um, <clears throat> yeah, we jumped on, he had a TC120. It's a pretty unusual bike. It had a split gearbox thing. You could make high, low ratio. It was a bit of a weird, you know, bike. Yeah, right. But we used to double, he used to double me, you know, and he was the rider at first. Not a great rider, but much better than me. I hadn't even ridden. So, you know, we used to just go flat out like crazy kids and there was hardly anyone on the trails, but then every now and then, you know, a four-wheel drive or something come the other way and we'd just peel off into the bush and endo and get up laughing and the people <laughs> in the in the four-wheel drive were freaking out. And But it was just so much fun, you know, and <clears throat> then the parents got a hold of some info that I was doing it and just frowned on it, just absolutely really? frowned on what, it. Yeah. What, what was their background for them to be, like, upset about it? Well, you know... Or was um, it just, like, overprotective parents or...? Yeah, I think it was a bit that way, but, you know, I... The thing that my parents did most for me throughout my whole career, even though they never gave me one dollar, was... Um, my old man was a pilot. He came out of the Second World War flying Kitty Hawks. Yeah. And then went straight into Qantas. <clears throat> and he flew for Qantas for 32 years and he was a pretty senior captain, you know. And um, so family get free trips. So we travel a lot as a family. Yeah. You know, not obviously not to motorbike races, but but I could also get cheap travel, you yeah. know. So um, that helped me a lot, you know. But my parents just... Um, yeah, I wasn't even allowed to talk about it. If I brought up anything about motorbikes, it just was a bombardment. So I just learned to shut up and just press on. And I kept, you know, I never didn't have a bike for a while, but I bought a Suzuki 70 step through and that was pretty funny. You know, it was all like 50 bucks sort of stuff. And um, I actually went in a race in it and, and bent the frame and and um, just a club day thing. It was uh, what they used to call a black event, yeah, um, which meant it wasn't sanctioned by the, you know, at the time, ACU, which was now MA, but yeah, confusing, stupid name. Uh, it was Auto Cycle Union, and if you look up Auto Cycle in the dictionary, it doesn't exist, so it's a bit strange. But <laughs> but anyway, um, yeah, it sort of started that way, and then um, you know, I used to just go around. My, my my mother especially loved me doing something. You know, it was like you'd wake up in the morning, and I had a brother and a sister, but we used to share the same bedroom, and they would. You know, we think, shit, what are we going to do? Mum's going to come in soon. She's going to say, what are you doing today? If it's a weekend, you know, and if you didn't have something organised, you'd just give you jobs. So we yeah, just true try and yeah. work around it, you know. Yeah. So she liked the she liked us having experiences and travelling and, and that helped, of course. That's why I sort of managed to get around different places quite cheaply and I had a, you know, within a pretty short time, I had a little lawn mowing business in the Blue Mountains and yeah, was making pretty good money for kid you know just sort of you know after school and different times and there was a lot of vacant lots in Winmalee then and I think the council had something to keep the grass a bit shorter and so there was plenty of people wanted me because I was a bit cheaper than another mower guy or something but 
yeah, I had a little thing going there that let me sort of do what I wanted to do a bit more, you know. Yeah, nice. And then so you get the you you get your first bike. Like, where did you keep it and stuff? If your parents weren't like, yeah, I kept it at my mate's place. The guy who had the the wow. first bike. Yeah, yeah right. And uh, yeah, his parents. Yeah, it was it was. I don't know. I didn't think that much of it, but if it was out of sight, it was it was fine, you know. Yeah. And you know, where are you going? Oh, I'm going around to Craig's place, and it was just like, yeah, cool. And you know, they probably knew he's going to ride those bloody motorbikes, but but you know, what do they do? So it was just one of those things where you know, my, my mother especially would just you know, you know, she'd she'd sort of squeeze something out of me like what's going on i go oh i'm gonna do you're gonna go riding aren't you and and then i wouldn't say anything and she'd go when are you gonna give up these bloody motorbikes you know it was like like it was a fad yeah it turns out never it was like it was like a little fad and surely you're gonna get over in another week but it's pretty hard to get over at all so yeah so she worked on it and um she didn't win i wonder (laughs) i wonder then uh if how much your parents kind of pushed back against you riding and the fact that you had to keep it at somebody else's house if if that like started to really get this desire like real legitimate desire because it most kids do go through fads right yeah and, and i think that like in my life and it's so it's funny like i had a, I had a lawn mowing business as well that's yep. how i bought my first yeah my first motorbike like it just wasn't a thing that we could do yeah and the fact that you know we couldn't have bike not that we couldn't have bikes but it just wasn't something that mum and dad were able to get for us when we were super young yeah and um you know like that that desire man like i wanted it so much and i took all these odd jobs and when i could get a job at like a video store i worked there yeah. and then i'd go to the supermarket after yeah. that so i don't know that I, I think about that in my own life because it just created this like crazy obsession that's lasted yeah you know all the way through my life so far so i wonder if that plays into it yeah well i think for sure because it's you who wants to do it you know it's not something that your dad did he rode bikes and he goes hey have a go of this and you go oh it's a bit of fun and and he kind of maybe wants you to do it more i mean you know if you get something easy you can maybe give it up easier but if you have Mm. to work at it you're not going to give up on it and of course there's different stages of your you know riding career or life or whatever that you go oh man there's a setback you know but you know i'm not going to give up on that so you know it makes you probably hungrier in a way too you might sort of feel like oh man that guy's got everything and you know yeah you know you, you just do what you do but but escaping motorcycling and doing something else wasn't even on the cards. So um, it was funny as we went through the you know the earlier years, and then uh, yeah, it was quite hilarious. And then eventually, um, my mother sort of turned around, and she actually became the best thing ever. Because um, you know, if we jump forward a bit, it was like um, I want to go. I just want to go overseas. I, I don't want to be here. You know. And I didn't have any money. They never gave me a dollar. They wouldn't give me a dollar towards that. So I'd been in the background trying to work out how I could make it work, you know. Um, and um, I'd already been over, you know, and I, I, I'd, I'd worked at the Mako factory. And, um, you know, that, that was a big step for a teenager to sort of leave home by yourself. I was a bit, you know, sort of homesick in a way, but it was... Um, it was easy to just keep going because I was, you know, focused on what I was mm. wanting to do. Um, but then 
then I sort of went, no, I want to do the... I was doing the German championships, living in Germany, working at the Mako factory and, and that sort of stuff. And I did the six-day in Germany that year. This is 79. But then um, 80, I decided I wanted to try and try and maybe do the World Enduro Championships or something. And, um, and you know, um, Anthony Gunter's brother, Terry Gunter, yeah. he'd been racing uh, internationals in Europe. He, um, and I heard about him, you know, because it was much harder to get organised in those days. And, and so I heard you had to have a manager to get a... You can't just go and enter, you know. You have to have a manager. And uh, so, yeah, I made contact with terry somehow and then he helped me get a couple of you know a manager and yeah. manager's name was bozaborf and didn't speak any That's english bizarre. yeah didn't speak any english and um but terry did because he'd been living there for six years doing it on a shoestring you know we're all shoestring guys and just making it work but it was better than going to work so <laughs> we were loving it in a lot of ways but but i hadn't i didn't have the guts to make that move you know it was different when when i was um had some work let's say but i was going to try and now just race for a living you know and um yeah so it it changed uh yeah it changed and then i only got like through correspondence again it's like letters you're waiting on letters yeah. and you know i'd try and contact terry and you know say hey have you heard anything from bozaborf and and I think at one stage there, I only had two, maybe three starts for the following year, you know, which, were, you know, you can't make much money out of that. Yeah. But I thought I'd, I'll get more, but there was nothing concrete, you know. So so I had, you know, I think my mother instigated it. She goes, you know, what are you going to do with your life? And I went, well, I'm doing it. You yeah, know? yeah. And uh, she's going, she's rolling her eyes a bit. And she goes, so you, you really want to do this motorcycle thing? I go, yeah, I do. Anyway, um, so she said, well, you know, do it. Just do it then. And I go, well, I'm working on it, but I've only got a couple of starts. So, I, you know, I'm nervous. I'm not going to have enough money. And, and then so the big turnaround was she said, well, just get a return ticket because that's kind of what you did in the old days and you still do it to some extent now. But she goes, just buy a return ticket and just go and do it. And if, if it doesn't work, just come home at least mm. you did it you know and and coming from a mother who had always been don't even talk about bikes to give me a blessing almost to do it but giving me the confidence to say look you've got to do it because mm. you'll never be arrested if you don't so just get out there and have a go you know and then if it all comes it's all bad just come back you know and everything's good and i just went man you just simplified my life so much and it that's it i'm gonna do it and it was just a huge turnaround so so there you go you know from one end of the scale yeah. to the next you know how how old would you have been then uh well the first yeah you know i'd been because you went it, over there when of, you were yeah, young, like, like 20 there's right? a there's a lot of stuff kind of happened before that so you know you know i started riding in uh, 70 or something like that and uh or 71 maybe and then um you know, I remember the big deal when the Elsinores came out in '73, and yeah. and I had a, I had you know I had a proper bike by then. I had a one two five Husky um, motocrosser, uh, which was not really the greatest, most competitive bike or anything like that. And a lot of the times, I could only get to, 
you know, I had no car and um, parents didn't want to do anything, you know, didn't even talk about it, as I said. So, you know, my mate's parents or or friends of friends might be going somewhere. So I was sort of dependent on where I could get a lift to. I just mm. wanted to race, you know. And so I did a lot of short circuit. And um, even though it didn't do me any harm, it's not really what I wanted to do. And yeah. and it was a bit of a tuning game where people were running methanol and all that. And, you know, yeah. and, and I just had the slowest bike anyway, plus never could afford methanol or anything. So, you know, I get smoked down the straights, but I really learned to ride around the corners pretty good. And so I just, you know, I did that where I could. I Every now and then I could get to a motocross and, um, you know, club days and uh, things like that. Then I, you know, I was sort of tossed between um, where do I go? Do I do a motocross or do I, you know, do enduro? And I, and I bought the first sort of new bike I bought was a Bull Taco 250 enduro bike. Yeah. And um, so, you know, I did everything with that. I did some motocross, club motocross and, you know, club enduro. They used to even have club trials and things like that. And um, so this is probably about maybe 75 or something. And, and I think I, you know, I might have even won the club championships or something in 76 maybe. But I was starting to go pretty good. And um, a lot of enduro stuff and I actually won a like a sort of a a national enduro in the 250 class in uh, Mittagong. So that was my first kind of, wow, I'm going okay in this. But then I'd get sort of dragged into something else. And then I and then I decided, no, nah, I want to do motocross. So I got a, I got a Suzuki um, 370. You know, at the time I thought it was a great bike, but, you know, they were rated later as being a bit of a <laughs> hard thing to ride. Yeah. But anyway, I was sort of, I was improving pretty quickly and... Um, and I was only a C grader, but I went to a an, in January, which is an unusual time. I know I've I've seen this because I looked up some stuff and I saw something that was written in the paper about oh, it. And I go, yeah, oh, it's yeah. January because I was seventy seven is a really tough year for me to remember. You know, I do know there's so many things, and and even then I'll probably get some stuff wrong because I can't, this just doesn't make sense. You know, yeah. so but but I saw that it was January, so they had a race at Amaru Park that was an all C grade meeting, and I pretty much dominated that so then the uh acu or ma guys said right you're up to b grade and so then i went to this um i went to a um like a a state round which was a b and uh, a and b grade to qualify for the australian championships which yeah. was in south australia so um Anyway, my hero, which is I've got a pretty funny story about my hero, and he's a Kiwi, and he oh, came you over. Telling this other, have yeah, I told yeah, you? Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. funny. Yeah. So uh, yeah, so I, I had this hero. You know, I was a pretty shy kid. I never talked to him. I just admired the shit out of him. And his number was thirty-five. And Brian Martin, he was a Kiwi, came over and he won some Australian motocross championships. But he, he rode Honda for a while. But he rode a Mako, and it's probably one of the reasons I sort of thought I loved Makos, you know. Mm. So that was pretty funny. And then, um, you know, my mother had talked me into doing upholstery and going into tech and everything, but the Mako dealer was uh, was in Gladesville, you know, so I'd borrow my mum's car every now and then and go to tech and um, and I'd stop at the Mako just because i go in there and go, wow, that's what Brian Martin rides, you know. Yeah. And uh, then I saw his bike was number 35 and I saw it there. I go, wow, you know, it's not like now where there's multiple bikes everywhere. It's like you probably only got one bike a year, but or maybe yeah. Brian got two. But 
anyway, it was a big deal for me as a pretty young guy to see his bike there. And then the import at the time sort of said, um, oh, yeah, I know who you are. You're an up-and-coming kid. You're going pretty good, and I could help you get into this bike. And I was just thinking, wow, imagine owning Brian Martin's bike. So I don't know how that happened because I never remember having a dime sort of thing. So, But it, something happened. I don't know how it worked. But it, anyway, I ended up with his bike, and and it was amazing, you know. So this was still 77. So I started on Suzuki, and uh, then pretty soon after I was on this Mako, so I went to the New South Wales Championships motocross to try and qualify to go to South Australia. That's how they did it in the day. Mm. And they, they only took, I think, in each class, they took five from each state. It was sort of just the way they did it, you know. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how they do it now. I'm not sure. I but think you just enter. Yeah, and then you qualify. Yeah, well, then, yeah, then there's no such like, thing yeah, as transponders like or anything yeah. like that. So yeah, it true. was just a race. And um, it was somewhere near Cessnock. I remember that. And... Um, anyway i went out in the in the practice laps and um you know trying to get used to it was it was a bit of a wet meeting and there was some big ruts and all this sort of stuff and uh you know and brian martin now was riding for yamaha so he'd obviously got you know bought up by those guys and um so i i came down to this big long rut section it was in a soft area and and i saw brian martin stopped in it and it was so you know at the time i was like wow never said anything to this guy ever so I rode up next to him and said, are you all right? And, and he looked at me and he pushed me over in the mud, you know. I was like, what the hell? This guy's fruitcake, you know. And he was still trying to start his bike. And so I got up and thought, well, stuff you. So I pushed him over and uh, I got my bike going and I took off. So, you know, the funny thing about that was, uh, well, I, I ended up qualifying. It was a mud bath and... Um, um, I this is this is the last year they had points on motorbikes. So before they went to electronic ignition, oh, so yeah, yeah, you know yeah. points were a nightmare, absolute yeah. nightmare. And and I the chains were shit back then. You know the biggest improvements is like electronic ignitions and O-ring chains and disc brakes. You know like yeah. especially the front. So so anyway, um, I think it was three motos and I did well in the first two. I can't remember what I got, but I did well. You know and. Um, and then on the last lap the chain came off and knocked the um ignition cover off and there was moisture everywhere and just and the bike stopped you know because the points are in there and um anyway I, I was on i had one lap to go but it was a mud bath there was a lot of people dnfing and stuff like that and so i was pretty dejected but one of the um officials came over and said just when the flag comes out push your bike across the line you know so i went oh okay so I did that, and, um, and it gave me an extra few points, and I qualified fifth. Oh, wow. So then I went, wow, I just I can go to the Australian Championships, you know. But anyway, going back to uh, to Brian, you know, like I didn't see him through the meeting. I just thought he was a dickhead all of a sudden. <laughs> the hero is the biggest dickhead that ever drew breath. So, <laughs> so 35 years goes by, and then uh, the Mako import at the time, Ross King, well, his wife was having a birthday party and he was a great mate of mine and he said you want to come and i said yeah sure you know that'd be good and um and he goes oh that's cool there's some bike guys coming warren willing's coming and brian martin's coming go, brian martin's coming <laughs> he's going yeah and he doesn't know the history i guess and, and he's and i'm going wow this is gonna be pretty interesting i'm gonna <laughs> i'm gonna have it out with this guy so uh 
he lives in South Australia now, so anyway, he went over and, uh, I mean, he was late to get there and I got there a bit early and started drinking too much red wine or something and, and I told this, I told heaps of people about this story. I'm going to meet this bloke <laughs> Martin. I've got to sort this shit out after 35 years, you know. Anyway, uh, a bit into the evening, this guy taps me on the shoulder and goes, I heard you wanted to talk to me. And I go, absolutely, yeah, I do, you know. So I said, I'm going first. He goes, right, I go for it. And, you know, I went through the story again and I said, why the hell would you do that, you know? Like, why would you push a guy over who was trying to help you, you know? And he goes, oh, okay. And he goes, I'll give you my version. And I go, righto. So anyway, he goes, well, I knew you were a bit of an up-and-coming kid and going all right, so I thought I'll follow you for a couple of laps. And um, so he did that, you know, and uh, I didn't know what – I didn't even know what brake checking was, but he thought I brake checked him. Because I, you know, Kiwis are much better mud riders than us, and and I slowed down a lot to go through these ruts, you know, maybe having a good look at them. I don't, I can't remember any of that. Because it was just practice, right? It was just practice, you know. And then he was behind me, and and he must have gone, oh, and he's breaking hard or doing something. And then he clipped me, which I didn't know, and he fell off in the mud. So meanwhile, I'd done a whole lap, and he was frustrated because he was trying to get his bike started again because nothing started (laughs) good back in those days. So then I came around, not knowing any of this, pulled up next to him and said, oh, are, you, are you all right? And he said, I, he thought I said, serves you right. And so <laughs> he just thought, you put me in the ground from, you know, brake checking me, serves you right. So he's going, I'm, I'm pushing this bloody dick over, you know. So so anyway, that's funny. So we sorted all that out and now we're really good friends and it's, uh, it's pretty funny how things happen, you know. How long ago uh, was the party where you was caught up? Um, that was probably um, about eight or nine years ago or something like that. So you've been friends for... So yeah, you're like yeah. enemies for 35 <laughs> years and then yeah, mate, yeah. mates for the last so 10. So idolised the dude, then 35 years he was a wanker and then, then the last eight years he's a real good bloke again, yeah. Oh, <laughs> God. So anyway, that was 77. So so we I qualified, you know, I got fifth. And then... Um, that's when I first met Laurie Alderton. I don't know if you know the name, but he's uh, he used to be one of the best, if not the best, uh, motocrosser in Australia, and he's done a lot of things, you know, and he's a bit of a legend, and he's uh, an older guy. He's, he's uh, now 80, 84 or 3 or something. Wow. Yeah, he's... he's where does he live? Like, he lives he down in, like, Parramatta area, Sydney, yeah, yeah. and there's many people know him from old school stuff, but, you know, he went to America and raced motocross, and anyway, he... So he was at the end of his sort of career when I came in, you know. Um, but he kept riding, I mean, but he but he was pretty elite when I came in, you know. He was riding the... They used to have unlimited class and 500 class, which is a bit weird, but the same bikes, same, you know. Yeah, you, yeah. yeah. So anyway, he had qualified in the unlimited class. And I can't remember if I had no car or whatever, but I always had trouble getting to events, you know. And, and so this guy, it's a bit like, you know, one of the top guys like Gibbs or someone coming up and talking mm. to someone and saying, hey, you know, do you want to lift to the next race? You know, yeah. it's sort of pretty random. So he just said to me, how are you going to get to South Australia? And I said, oh, I haven't got a clue. And he goes, you can come with me if you want. So um, that was awesome. And, you know, to meet this guy and just we never stopped talking the whole way to South Australia. And I can't remember if it was one month later or whatever, but it was not, you know, a long time later. And... Um, so I was still B grade, um, but pretty much unknown, you know, by any 
you know, people who grabbed a program, for instance, you know. So yeah, I went down yeah. there and, and they used to have a system where each state would get, um, I don't know, like a draw or something, you know. Uh, and New South Wales got the, let's say, the last pick, you know. So if, if there was, um, you know, six states entering and then um, you got, um, you know, New South Wales got, you know, sixth. Well, mm. then if you qualified first in New South Wales, you got the sixth pick at the gate. Yeah. And then the second yeah. guy got the 12th. Anyway, I was the last qualifier. So you got the last gate pick. I got the last gate pick. And so it was funny because it was pretty, you know, it, like now everybody studies the gate. Mm. Gates back then used to fall towards you, not away from you, you know. But anyway, I got, it was a CUSA Park, which is a pretty good facility. I think it still exists, you know. So anyway, I was right over on the right-hand side, and when I got there, I went, oh, this looks like a pretty good place to start, you know. And um, I got a great start, you know. And I came into the corner, you know, fourth or fifth or something and pushed a little bit and then jammed into into third. And then coming out of the corner was a guy called Ivan Miller and Mike Lambman. Yep. You might know Mike Lambman because yeah, he's had Mike, a bit to yeah. do with, yeah. you know, mechanicing and stuff. Yeah. Anyway, he was a factory Yamaha rider. Like he was a gunner. Full factory. You know, there was a lot of factory bikes back then. Everything was, you know, whatever, titanium, magnesium. It was amazing. But anyway, he was a hero of mine. I'd never talked to him in my life either. And um, and those two guys went into the second corner banging bars trying to give each other a hard time. And I just turned underneath them and I went, wow, I'm winning. It was just so classic. So half-hour motos and um, I wasn't really ready for it fit enough all that stuff but i let it for 20 minutes and then i fell off you know just through being knackered and um yeah so anyway i i think i finished um i fell off twice actually i fell off trying to get back onto the track i hit a tire and fell off again so you know i think i finished fifth or something like that uh, maybe the second motor i did the same thing in the second motor and i can't remember i just remember the first motor how it ended up there but anyway i was leading the second motor and wow. um, yeah so i was this kid laurie said it was so funny because as soon as i was in the lead he said people were pulling their programs Program, out yeah, and going who the hell's this you know what number were you running back then uh, do you remember yeah no i don't know if i can remember no I, i'm not sure but um Anyway, um, the weirdest thing about it was, and it, and it's it's even weird today, is the whole meeting was televised live by the ABC, which I didn't know. I just knew it was televised. I found out later from Anthony Gunter. He knew all about it. So, you know, huge cameras like, you know, you see indoors and you know, it's all non-digital. It's all just massive stuff. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. These, these nationals are good, you know. Yeah. <laughs> anyway... Um, so the funny story there was, you know, my parents didn't follow it. I didn't talk to them. They just upset them and stuff. But, you know, they knew he's probably riding that bloody motorbike somewhere. And um, anyway, so my sister was ironing some clothes and flicking through channels. Or well, you don't flick through back then. You walk yeah. forward and do it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah on the telly. And um, she sees this motocross on TV. And she goes, oh, I think this is what Jeff does, you know. That is anyway, so funny. it's so funny, you know. So then she's looking at it, and the the guy is talking about me because I'm winning it, but he's talking about me <laughs> like I'm the loosest kid he has ever seen, and like I'm going to kill myself, you know. 
And so he rings mum and says, you better turn the telly on, Jeff's on the telly. And so, of course, you know, she's obviously scared shitless and, and she turns it on and this guy's talking like, there's, there's no one I've seen as wild as this kid. He's just <laughs> loose, you know. So she only turns it on for five seconds and then decides, this is bad, what my son's doing, you know. <laughs> But anyway, so anyway, I went okay, didn't get injured, had a great time, just thought, man, I'm in a motocross, this is good, you know. And um, so the following weekend was uh, Australia versus New Zealand Motocross Challenge. I don't know who paid for it, fully sponsored by some Kiwis over there that got their shit together and made this thing happen. It was pretty cool. I think they did it a few times. They've probably even done it recently. I'm sort of a bit more out of touch on that now. But anyway... um, so I went down there with Laurie and then um, this guy who was running the New Zealand event was at this Australian championship and uh, he came up to me and said, wow, you're going good and, you know, do you want to come over to New Zealand and next weekend? Is, and I'm like, absolutely, that would be so good, you know. Anyway, so then he said, um, well, if you can get your, you know, I've talked to Mike Lamman already, never met him before in my life, but he goes, he said you can stay at his place. And on Wednesday, you got to get the bikes to the airport. And um, then, you know, we're flying you over. And I was just going, wow. You know, so I said, Laurie, sorry, mate. you got to go back by yourself. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so it was kind of how things started, you know. And, um, yeah, so, you know, as I said, piecing things together is, is with some years, is tricky, you know, because yeah. there's very few photos ever taken back then too. So it's not like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, and, you know, they're not dated so anyway um did that but fell in I, you know i had a lot to do in new zealand and went to school there for a year and sort of loved new zealand in itself but um mike lamb and i became pretty good mates you know and then we we went man, he's a great guy he's he? a great he's a really he good is. guy yeah so so we went wow this is just so cool let's just um let's i can't remember if we left bikes there but we went back and raced their summer series you know yeah right and um anyway yeah we ended up getting a little unit and another guy dave um and there was three of us decided we want to go and do motocross we got a we got a um you know little hillman bloody something yeah you know, bought a car for a couple hundred bucks and we even hitchhiked to some races with bikes which is a classic and you know we knew a lot of guys would be coming past because um, we could only get a couple of the bikes out of the three sometimes, you know, to yeah. the meeting. So we yeah. just went, we'll just hitchhike, have a bike there. And there's all these bikes coming along and there's guys with three bike there trailers. There with your with downs. And, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, anyway, we, I don't know, we we got there in the end. Oh, no, we, that's right. We couldn't get a lift and we pulled the steering head out of this thing and put it in the back. But, oh, but we all got there, you know. It was just the way you did things. It was a lot of fun. Um, but anyway, we fell in love with that place and... Um, and uh yeah from there what happened oh yeah so then suzuki australia decided i was worth sponsoring and um well what so what was the landscape the moto manufacturer landscape like back then because i I guess i know mako and bull taco i know there was the major brands but i guess i've never really had someone with your level of experience explain exactly what the dirt bike landscape looked like in the 70s as far as manufacturers Look, it, you know the japs had started to take over for sure you know it was um the thing for me was um yeah it was the shit they sold stacks of bikes it was incredible but you know the japs were taking over there was no doubt about it in fact they pretty much had you know and 
um, in Australia, Mako, for instance, was... So they were um, a German company? Yeah, they were yeah. German, West German. Yeah, yeah, so back then it was East and West and East was communist. And yeah. So, um, yeah, it was like Mako was big, but more so in Enduro, you yeah. know. And, um, but in the States, Mako was really big, you know. Maybe not as big as the Jap, but it's a bigger market. But, but their motocross market was much bigger than Enduro. But in Australia, it was... Um, yeah, all you know, all the Japs were into it, and um, and really having a go, you know, and like there was Yamaha and Kawasaki and Suzuki, full factory bikes. Like you just look at them as a kid, just going, "Oh my god!" And I got to know a lot more about them when I hung out with Mike Lamb because he had full factory Yamaha, and um, the amount of the amount of parts you get. That, and also, like, not one part is the same as a production. Not like a... Really? You know, once production uh, frames or rule, whatever they call the thing, comes out now, I mean, you know, people are putting different triple clamps and different things, but there was nothing the same. It was just so light. You know, they gave Mike as a factory rider, you know, I'm pretty sure I'm right here, and he had at least four or five frames, you know, so they only wanted him to do so many motos and then change the frame because it's going to break because it's thin, it's yeah. light. It was crazy. And, um, you know, all the wheels of magnesium, everything was different. It was just amazing. So I just remember going before we flew over to New Zealand looking in his shed, just going, man, you know, like I don't like it to have a spare spark plug, and this guy yeah. had stacks of stuff. And did that, that translate to speed back then, the, all the factory bikes um, and parts? Yeah, it, it did. I don't know how much, but we went over and, um, and Mike took his factory bike to New Zealand. Yeah. And the New Zealand tracks were much rougher than our Australian tracks, you know much rougher and and the mako was tough man it, you know i didn't have any problems but pretty much every weekend mike's bike would crack the frame you know and start breaking here there here there and he had people trying to weld it up and it was so light it was so hard and in the end he gave up and he white's yamaha was a big dealer in hamilton and they said no no you just the, the new bike came out you know the following year and it was a bit better or trick at the time or whatever and they wanted him on that so he rode that and i think his results changed a bit you know like he he didn't go as good as he did on the factory bike but but the but thing was the thing was much tougher even though the euro bikes were considered more durable but you know at the time the japs weren't maybe that good durability i know you know honda was excellent you know in comparison to some of the others and then yamaha would close behind or got even better in the end you know but but they were the first guys to really get the quality control better you know but yeah it was a different world man it was uh, and there was like husky was around yeah who, definitely. who else was around in that era yeah it was mainly um you know earlier earlier days than this and these days more in more earlier days in motocross book taco was really strong with the floods you know they, yeah. were, they were so strong but mostly um there was a few you know there was a few makos there was um a few bull tacos um you know you hardly ever saw an ossa like you did in you, you did people saw, you know they sold them but but mainstream and depending on what you did maybe if you went to club days more yeah. th then you would see more of the other stuff but by then i was racing national stuff and state stuff so those guys were more of the supported guys and yeah. supported, you know, in a general sense. So there would be more of the mainstream, um, you know, 
Yamahas and you know yeah. Williams and um, and uh, Gawley and Gunter and all those guys, you know. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, it, Makos were were not common. They were a bit more rare. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So and so compared to now, like how much did the tracks change in terms of roughness compared to like these days? Because I feel like even so, Manji when we we did manji the other day you could yep. see the the way that the braking bumps would form up the you know the big single off the start straight yeah and you've yep. just got these bumps and i'm sitting there thinking like in two stroke days those bumps probably didn't get there in the same way because you don't have like mm. the, the drag of the engine braking like have, oh, well, could, have you noticed some... tracks change um yeah yeah for sure like they as you get better suspension and more refined and more yeah. more travel, to some extent, you get you get bigger bumps. So, yeah. but the suspension's also better. So, it's just the same. Yeah. In the end, in the end, it you works just, out the same. You're just riding as hard as you possibly can for as long as you can, and you're climbing the walls to get out of holes. You're doing whatever it takes, and you know in a way nothing changes you know the holes might be bigger but you can but run into them more so yeah. yeah so you still try and get out of the way you know you're still de- depending but you you know you climb the edges to get out of them where you have to and where you think it's the best line you know but i don't think i don't think ultimately it's you know the the basic thing hasn't changed you just you just right into the holes as hard as you can and try and make it all work it's more refined now this for sure you know yeah we used to um you know we used to think we were serious but it's not like you used to train every day you know you couldn't afford it and different things like that but but everyone was to some extent in the same boat you know i was i was pretty amateur i guess compared to a lot you know the guys who had factory support had more pressure and well they were more organized i never had anyone yeah. helping me at all yeah. so so I never really knew what I was doing too much and I didn't train much, you know. I used to go to some of the meetings and go, wow, these guys have just got their shit together. they got they got multiple people helping them, you know. Yeah. So it was a bit different that way for me, you know, but, but I was just looking at that landscape of uh, who was out there and, you know, you just focus on what you're trying to do and just sometimes that pumped you up, you know, you go, I'm going to beat these bastards. You yeah. Know? But, but basically... Um, you know, people say that. Is it is it harder now or easier? I go. I think it's the same. I think yeah. it's just the same. It's just relative. It, yeah. You know, it's it's like because the bikes didn't maybe handle as well. Then, the, you know, when you crash, I think I think you, you don't crash as much maybe, but but you crash big. You know, you nowadays. Can. Yeah. yeah. You still fall over, and you know, most of the time you crash in a awkward corner or something like that. So that still happens. But but sometimes when they let go and they're they're that wound up but things happen pretty big time so yeah yeah and you know back then we used to not have uh we had jumps plenty of jumps i suppose but they weren't none of them were really timing jumps you know and then i went into i can't remember exactly what year that i did the mr motocross i think it was um like 80 or 81 or 82 or something i, I get confused a bit but i only i only did it once you know and um and then I went into the final round uh, of the series and I was fifth. And uh, I don't know if Gore was winning it or Gunter, but one of those two. And then Beetle Bailey was another guy and uh, I think Williams. And then 
Vince Tesserero, the rat guy, he was the one you know, yeah, made it all yeah, happen. And yeah. there was sort of recognition for the top five and I was really happy to be in there. And I wanted to finish, even though I was probably only going to do that one race. And I was riding it on an enduro bike that was changed a bit. But but it didn't make much difference in Mako terms. They didn't they didn't do a lot of different. They had a heavy flywheel or something. Oh, yeah. You yeah. know, it wasn't huge differences. But, um, but anyway, we turned up at the final round at uh, Amaru Park and i had a pretty pretty reasonable lead over sixth and least was sixth and i just wanted to finish in the top five you know and um i said to my mate whatever happens i just have to finish every every moto you know and they were sprints back then you you'd do i don't know how many laps but not that many and you'd come back to the start line yeah. you actually would park on the start line yeah it was weird anyway um when we got to the track they had some they had quad jumps you know so we never seen anything like it you know i don't know if gunner or gall had seen anything like it i wouldn't i wouldn't be surprised if gawley had you know someone had given him the clue and said hey you're gonna get these jumps that are gonna be looking like this you know but i'd never seen anything like it we just didn't know how to ride them you know so it caused havoc and so how what would the like the scale and sizing and distance like they the, everything was wrong yeah, they had no right. experience so the size you know they were probably only as big as you know as tall as we are you know um and and they were sort of even there was just four jumps in a row um but there wasn't a lot of gap between you couldn't do four no one ever did four there wasn't enough speed or and christ you know we didn't know how to do them so that would have been chaotic so you know, we were just talking like, how do you do these things, you know? And, they, and someone goes, I think you can do two and then two, you know? It was so nuts. That's crazy It was think so that, bad, eh? really. Anyway, you know, we were whinging our head off saying, get the bulldozer out, this is ridiculous, you know? Anyway, I splattered myself. So, you know, we didn't have the sensation of how to do it, you know? So front wheels high, you had to just... It was all about timing and you just didn't yeah. have that timing. So... The thing that I remember that was funny, and I know now, is if you made a mistake doing the first two and you over-jumped them a bit so you didn't have the right approach for the next two, you just abort, right? You just go, nah, and roll the next two. But we didn't have that mentality. It was just like, shit, you've got to clear the next two. So you just gas it and everything would be wrong. And that's exactly what happened to me. So I splattered myself and knocked myself out. But my mate, who I said I have to finish, you know, he picked me up. This is Chris Cater, and uh, he picked me up. He he was an official too. Somehow he squeezed into there, and 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 he and he just goes go go, and and like I was in fairyland. I don't even remember any of this. I was told this, you know. So I had enough um, program stuff going in there to know that's it goes that way, and just do it, you know. Yeah. Anyway, apparently I rode pretty well still. But I have no recollect, re- recollection of it. And I I went back to, you know, like the pits, which was on the side. You were supposed to go to the start line because I didn't know what I was doing. And um, anyway, Kate is going, go to the start line, go to the start line. And I don't even know where I am. I'm going, what, what, why, what, what start line? And it's kind of one of the areas where I met my, my future wife. She was there and she used to be a nurse. And she, she comes up and she's arguing with Kater going no he's not right he can't ride and and i'm just 
I'm kind of getting scared. I'm going, what's going What's on? wrong these with people are, These people are all yelling and everything. Anyway, Jen, Chris Kate is massive, so she wasn't going to win any push-shove. Yeah. And so she went and got the medics, and they came over and just checked me out. Go, oh, no, you're not going on anymore. Yeah, that's oh, it. So, no. so, um, so that was that. But, um, yeah, I think I dropped back to six maybe or something like that. But, you know, and I... Even if it was 80 or 81 or 82, I don't know how I did it because I I was overseas a lot too. So maybe I just left straight after there. Or I, I don't know. It's hard to piece some of that stuff together. You know, it really is. But but um, anyway, that's where I met Jen, you know, one time. But And that if it was 80, then didn't really get together until the end of 80, 81 or something like that, you know. So, But I was going back to... Um, yeah, I was like once I once I got my foot in the door, you know, I I went and work, worked at the Mako factory for yeah seven months. That was a funny story too, in a way because how did that come about? Well, I was just desperate to you know I could beat everyone in in Australia in enduros. Yeah, so but actually before we get into that, so you've always been torn between moto and enduro obviously you lean yeah. more to enduro nowadays like if we look back yeah. at like the bulk of your career yeah but at the start there was like a pretty it seemed like you were quite torn between those two so i guess like explain your yeah. headspace around those yeah, two yeah. disciplines well, um motocross was my passion really you know so i love motocross um and as i said 77 was the craziest year you know and then when I did well at the Aussie Champs, then I got a Suzuki sponsorship and and I thought, wow, this is amazing, you know. I mean, I was sponsored by Mako, but it was a much bigger deal, you know. Anyway, um, so, yeah, I was into motocross and, and I was totally into motocross, really. Like, if you know, if you said the percentage, it was much higher than enduro. But I understood enduro and I'd seen on any Sunday and I was... That was one of the things, you know. I saw Malcolm Smith uh, mm. race in the sixth day, and I went, "Wow, that's really cool!" And it just was in the back of my brain, you know. And um, I met these guys. I think I must have been injured or something because I was at Dargle at one of the top motocross tracks yeah, used to have in the yeah, day. Yeah, and um, I wasn't riding, so I must. Uh, the, the only reason would have been, you know, something was wrong. I was a bit injured or something. And uh, I saw these two guys with headlights riding. And uh, well, I'm going to go and see what their story is. And it was um, Alan Cunningham and Rob Haskins, you know. So they were guys going over to do the six day in Czechoslovakia. Anyway, I said, what's the story? And they go, oh, we're just trying to get, you know, do a bit of motocross, bit of speed training or whatever. We're going to the six day. I go, oh, I've heard of the six day. Yeah, it's cool, blah, blah. Anyway, um, and I had no money, you know, basically. And uh, anyway, they said, oh, well, we're going over soon. It was in, a, you know, weeks or less and uh they said why don't you come and then i said oh, i got no money and they go you, you can just come with us because i was you know just to go and watch i must have had something wrong like i don't know spraying something or whatever and um they said yeah well, you know we got a hire car and we got a rent a room you can just use that and everything and it was just the most amazing experience and so i could get over there for two bob because parents you know yeah with the with flights. the cheap flights yeah. and, and then so, you stayed with those guys yeah so my mother who liked me exploring the world she hated me doing anything with bikes but exploring the world was yeah, all right you know so organized a, a ticket and i went over there and, and it was it was just hogan's hero stuff it was so cool it was full communist you know sliding mirrors 
under the vans and great huge barriers and no man's land between where they poison everything you know all the vegetation's gone and just just attitude and it was so weird it was a bit scary but anyway I got there and and uh just went wow how amazing is this and jeff eldridge the guy I used to um you know started the adb mag and all that sort of stuff i told him i was going he goes oh wow that's cool and he goes i'll give you a letter that's uh, an intro for the um a press pass you know and i go oh okay you know i didn't think that much of it but he gave me this letter and then i'm over there and i'm looking at just a different world like v8 air cooled rear engine tatras you know and just no color there's no color in the whole world they had supermarkets but everything was in brown paper bags it was just unbelievably different and even though i'd traveled a lot i'd never seen anything like it but but the passion and the the amount of people that would go to everything you know and watch mm. everywhere you went on a trail or whatever there was people so so i was just there to learn you know and uh or just an experience you know and i just just blew me away and then i saw the thing press center i went wow i've got that letter so i went over and and God, gave them the crazy. letter and they just welcomed me so much and they gave me all this you know propaganda and paraphernalia and all this stuff and all these banners and just maps and everything of where to find all the vantage points and they gave me a bike they gave me a 250 jawa which what? is like a road like a bit of a road tiny bit trail had the mud guard on the right down near the tire on the front and they gave me a helmet with no peak on it and of course you can't ride you know so everyone was laughing about that and someone had a spare peak so i duct taped that on <laughs> and it was just the greatest time and i just felt so free and I, like so i just went man i've got all the maps i'm gonna go and find all these and i'm gonna watch this event like nothing else you know i don't even think i had a camera but you know i was press pass so it was pretty hilarious <laughs> anyway uh went out and um you know, I just explored the thing, but I just fell in love with the thing. And, and, you know, as a nation, we were not good at six days back then. We were pretty bloody terrible. Really? Um, but I just, I just, you know, the best guy was an Italian guy at that, um, at that um, event. And they were flying, you know, compared to our guys. And, and I could, I looked at it and I go, man, I could do this. I, I don't know. I just, I just went, this is it, man. This is what I want to do and so and what was was it just the writing or was it everything that surrounded it, it was, was it like the adventure it was, the ex, was it the unknown yeah it was like everything in this country of course because it's so accepted over there and everything that we had ever seen was like so not accepted you know if you, mm. if you say to the general public to ride a bike they go oh yeah right oh, whatever you're the one of the noisy guys or you know in this country everybody came to the opening ceremony everybody just walked up every trial to look at it everybody smiled at and when you saw you and and it was just bigger than ben Hur. you know it was mm. just the opening ceremony and jets flying over it's going wow this is just the next level i don't know i just i just went i like it and it's, and, and you know the background of on any sunday and uh, seeing malcolm do it and i go yeah i'm into this shit. this is this is what i want to do so I came back and I was still Suzuki sponsored and um, they, I said, oh, I think I want to go enduro ride and they're going, oh, whatever, like you're a motocrosser, that you, that's what you set up for, you know. Anyway, and I, you know, I sort of lost, you know, I still wanted to deep down be an enduro guy and, uh, but I kept going, you know, and then um, that must have been, yeah, that would have been like September, October that I came back from there and then 
at some stage, I think early in the year or something, I went and did the Pacific Motocross Championships for him in Tahiti, which is pretty bloody random. Um, yeah, that's super random. Yeah, and uh, it's crazy, that place, because there's no flat ground, but we had to go to the other side of the island. That's when I first met... Um, actually, it's not... No, it's not when I f- first... Oh, yeah, it is, it is. It's when, when I first met Brock Glover. Yeah. Know? So, you know, he was right. American, 125 yep. champ, and I'd never met John DeSoto. He was a... He was a Hawaiian. They called him the Flying Hawaiian, yeah. you know. And he was, you know, he was one of the top pro guys from America. And uh, anyway, I did well, and I won the five hundred class, and Glover won the one two five, and Desoto won the two fifty. And um, but anyway, it was funny because I talked to Brock Glover when he came. He came over here to do the, um, you know, the classic dirt or something like that. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and I thought, I wonder if he still remembers me, you know. Because I, you know, I, in uh, 79, after the sixth day, so this is the year I worked at the Mako factory yeah. in Germany, in West Germany, and I'd met an American enthusiast, just a, you know, like a, just an enthusiast. He didn't ride bikes and don't think much at all, but he had a little accessory shop called Cycle Nuts and Bolts in, uh, in Atlanta, Georgia. And he was just a friendly guy, and I just met him at the hotel or something, and he said... Um, are you going to come to the six day next year? I go, oh yeah, man, I ride the six day every year. That's my, that's everything, you know. And he goes, well, when you're coming home next year, why don't you come via the states and come and hang out for a couple of weeks? I go, yeah, that could be good. And I did it. And so um, I landed in Atlanta and I went there and I knew Barry Higgins, which was one of the sort of famous American races in earlier days, but Mako dude, you know. Yeah. And um, Anyway, one thing led to another and it was pretty funny because I arrived on like a Wednesday or a Thursday and then this guy, Tommy, said, oh, Barry Higgins' shop's only not far from me. I go, are you kidding? He goes, no. He goes, let's let's call him. So we called him and, um, and he goes, you know, what are you doing here and all this stuff? I go, oh, yeah, I'm just here for a few weeks and... And he goes, oh, man, that's cool. We have to get together. And he hung up and, and then he rang back a minute later. And he goes, hey, the uh, Trans AMA motocross is on in road Atlanta, which is a road race track in the middle of it. They've got a you know, oh, circuit. Oh, really? Yeah. And he goes, you should ride it. And like I just finished the six day, so I was over riding anyway. And I went, oh, yeah, no, you know, no, I'm right. And he goes, no, no, you got to do it. You got to do it. And so... So he went, I didn't have a bike or anything, you know, and then, uh, and this is like the biggest motocross in America, you know, the Trans-AMA. And uh, so anyway, he rings the organisers and, and I think they have the shits with him because, you know, mate, it's like, you know what day it is and, you know, yeah. or something like that. Anyway, um, in the early days, the Euros used to come over and, you know, beat the beat the Yanks pretty easy, you know, but... Um, it, it had turned around and so a lot of the Yanks, all of the, you know, Adolf Wheel and DeCosta and Willie Bauer and all these dudes who pretty much showed the Americans how to do it in the earlier days had all kind of left and um, it had changed, you know, there was different people and Mal Herb was um, maybe 500 champion that year or he was one of the best, you know, but he was the only guy that year doing it. All really? the rest didn't bother coming. I think they couldn't make money or they weren't winning enough or something. Anyway, there was only one, right? And he fell off through the week practicing and broke his <laughs> collarbone. So they didn't, um, they'd sort of said, hey, it's an international race. 
and then they didn't have any internationals. So Barry found that out and rang them back, hassled them, said, if you want to have this at True International, you've got to have at least someone from out of the state. So I ended up getting getting in there, and it was pretty embarrassing, to be honest. Like, I had a big crash in practice, and then um, then in the first moto, the guy got all excited because I was going to ride his bike, so he put a new piston ring in it but forgot to tighten the cylinder properly, and then the cylinder started coming loose and oh. sucking air, and everything was going wrong. But... The second moto, they had a really, you know, weird straight with a jump on it, and I didn't do it right, and I jumped on the back of Brock Lover. And <laughs> I didn't do it right, <laughs> and and I had a big, you know, had a big crash and put him down too, and he was oh. he was one of the, you know, like the golden golden boy, boy yeah, yeah. So, and I didn't actually know. I knew I hit him, and I, you know, I just went endowed and didn't know what happened. I was facing the wrong way, so I couldn't see that he was over there, you know, and. Uh, but I soon found out when I took off and then, you know, all his, all his um, pit board guys were just giving me shit and you know, oh. I was going, oh, Jesus. You know? <laughs> so, um, yeah, anyway, it wasn't the best meeting ever. But but then I um, I went, wow, I'm enjoying it over here. And I went and did a, a big enduro and I'd been, you know, I was into the American dirt bike mag and, you know, we used to idolise all these different people and enduro riders and six-day guys from America and... Uh, so there was a big enduro called the Odenville 100 and uh, decided to go in that and borrowed a different bike and, and uh, ended up winning it outright. So that was my first decent go, you know. And I was like, wow. And then Barry, who owned the Mako shop, was wrapped. So he said, man, you're staying because we're going to do the winter, the uh, what do they call it, the winter AMA series, yeah, which yeah. was all Florida-based sand series. Yeah, and, You know, when you come from Australia pretty much overseas everyone thinks you're a, you're a great sand rider but you know where i grew up never yeah, even ridden sand, sand you know? no. so um i was a bit of a basket case at first but did the whole series and learned how to ride sand and was pretty reasonable in the end and just loved it you know but i again i had no money and i was only there for two weeks and all, all my tickets i used to get through you know staff were um changeable you know easily changeable yeah so uh, I just changed it, you know, but I had no money. So I talked to the guy, I said, oh, man, I have to get a job. I have to do something, you know, and uh, and I became an upholstery, upholsterer by trade. So, you know, forced from my mother, you've got to have a proper job. You can't do yeah. this. So I just kept d- doing stuff. Did it in an unusual way, did through block release, they call it. And, and uh, yeah, it was helped a lot, but I ended up with it, you know, still managing to race all the time. And... Um, so it was funny, yeah. So I talked to this guy, and they go, "We know an upholsterer, Ricky Spinks," which is pretty funny because there's a girl who works at uh, that's actually MX. My, that's my ex girlfriend. Oh, well, there yeah, you go. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, so how random is that? Because, that is very um, random. Yeah, like you know, Ricky was obviously a bloke, and it was R I C K Y, and then yeah, when I met that that girl at work there she goes oh, i'm ricky spinks i go what oh, no, ricky spinks. <laughs> yeah yeah so he was the upholsterer so i worked for him he paid me under the table for um five months i stayed and uh yeah had a great time so then i went back from there to europe you know and kept doing the things and loved it you know surviving just um and uh yeah terry was a savior for me you know he he could speak french and he worked pretty much got all the correspondence because there was no mobile phones and everything it was all about letters and mm-hmm. getting getting more um, motocross starts and by then you know um chris main donald who lives on the gold coast here, he's a kiwi um and he was one of the guys we hung out with and um mike landman 
and uh, Gary Ben used to see yeah, him a fair yeah. bit. You know, he he wasn't racing, but we saw him around. I can't remember. You know, um, was he mechanic and back then for people? Yeah, he was. Yeah, because yeah. he was Lisi's mechanic at at, um, at one point, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, um, yeah, and Dax and everyone. Yeah, yeah. But Pelly Pelly Gronquist was. Um, he was over there and he was doing the international. We called him the international. So um, most of them were in France. That's where the money was to be made. Yeah. Um, yeah. But the, you could do the GPs. And the GPs, you could make money, but it was really risky. You know, like you'd go all the way to Sweden or whatever. And then uh, yeah. if you didn't qualify, then good on your mate, you came all that way. But yeah. I don't know if anyone's ever explained to you how professional and how it used to be in Europe with motocross, but it was no. absolutely unbelievable. It was so really? good. Yeah. So you had to have a manager. He took about 5% of yeah. your money. And so you can't enter races or you couldn't enter races without having a manager do it for you, right? Yeah. And so his job was to go to these people running these races and there was multiples uh, on each weekend, often throughout France. And, you know, sometimes we went to Spain and places like that. But a lot of them were in... The most money was to be made in, in France. Anyway, so you go to the manager... You know, you'd lie a bit, try and sell yourself, oh, man, I'm, I'm a good motocrosser, you know. Um, but it was easy for the Aussies because they didn't get many Aussies, you know. There was stacks of the Swedes and the, and the Finns and the Italians and everybody else. But Aussies, and I guess Kiwis, but it was easy, you know, easier. So they had a thing called minimum guarantee. So only the Carl Quists and the you know, Jean-Jacques Brunos and the guys who were world champ contenders got start money, and that was a different thing. But just about everyone else was on uh, minimum guarantee. So they used to have three races, and to simplify it, I can't remember, it was all in French francs back then, but so three motos, let's say, you know, let's say, you know, you win $100 for coming, um, you know, sixth in each moto so let's just say back then you know so you go this, you'd sell yourself and this guy go oh, okay and he'd probably know you a line a bit and read between the lines yeah. or whatever yeah and so he'd go yeah i you know i think you 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 should be good for like sixth place you know so the sixth place on the three prize money scales for each, you know each race let's say six was sixth was a hundred bucks so so your if your minimum guarantee was would be 300 bucks so if you went out in the first moto and got a fifth and you know you made 115 or something and and then you went out in the next one and you got a you know another hundred you know you got six or something like that so yeah. you got 215 and then you bombed out in the last race you get three hundred dollars. You and can't make less than three hundred dollars. And how much was three hundred dollars back then? Oh, I know like this hypothetical anyway. Yeah, so. Yeah. Look, you know, it, well, I guess like it wasn't you... a lot. Yeah, so, you know, it was probably, it was all in French Frank, so it's a bit confusing. But, you know, it depended on the race meeting, but let's say they had me down for like sixth or something. So um, with sixth, you can survive, you can eat, you can buy new tires, you can do whatever you're doing and, you know, living in your van, everyone lived in vans. Um and cruise around you mightn't have your next race for two weeks so you know you it was fine it mm. was fine you weren't making money but but you were fine you know you're having a great time um so 
the beauty of it was that you could go out as soon as it you had to do if you broke down you know in unofficial practice you were a bit out but if you know practice on the day was official and if you broke down you blew up your engine in practice they go here's 300 bucks here's 300 bucks not start money minimum guarantee big difference so so here's your 300 bucks but you know we're not going to give you a hard time over it but if you keep not getting it then it's going to go down yeah and and so you know they look after you you can go you can break down not even race the event and And you get 300 bucks and you can go to the next one do the same and then they go "Mm, it's harder for you to sell them to the next one they go how'd he go oh yeah you know broke down Mm." whereas if you know they thought oh you're good for six but you got a fourth a third and and another third or something you go oh you you got third or fourth overall or something and you might have made 500 bucks or 600 bucks so there's your 600 bucks you couldn't make any less than your minimum guarantee mm. but you know you got looked after so you know it's, it's like you know you've traveled a long way or you've done whatever or you're a pro motocross so you know we know you can have bad days and they just looked after you and it was it was unreal and uh, mike lambman and i used to yeah we we just did it because it was a survival for us and we went to a uh, we went to something i can't remember if it was a mud bath but I think we only did one moto and then um and then that was it and uh and they wouldn't pay us the minimum guarantee you go to a little caravan at the end and they give you an envelope and and I said to Mike how much money did you get and he goes you know whatever it was I go that's not right and I said I got I got dudded too you know so then we were banging on the door we were we were just going minimum guarantee you know <laughs> and that guy came out and went oh fuck there you go here's your money and uh but it was good it was a really good system and um, if you did well you got rewarded with a higher minimum guarantee and because you're a better rider you know? yeah so it was it was a very good system but but saying that it was still you know it was hard sort of to in some ways i wanted to do world enduro and that was just spend you know i was yeah. supported by the factory but you know only with um only parts and you know bikes and parts and then i could make money pretty easy in motocross but um you know unless i started dominating the world enduro championship they they weren't going to put me on a retainer my teammate was a world champ guy italian guy andrini so you know he was in a different league at that time and like i could beat him here and there but you know consistently i wasn't there so um yeah it was um it was great experience but but then you know through terry it was really funny because i'd never actually met terry and you know i was trying to pick his brain how does it work in france and you know and i was so nervous about you know my mother sort of said do it and i was going yeah i really want it to work you know and just just stay there i just wanted to be able to survive you know anyway you know no mobiles or anything like that and so i left the mako factory in germany drove all the way over and i was so nervous i was going to the wrong place because it was domatsu la luce in france and there's domatsu la luce or something down south and i only realized oh. half this when i got near it and i went i haven't even got enough money to get if it's if it's this if other it's one, the wrong place if I it's the wrong there. place and i came into town and it's a bit like the tour de france you know they get excited in that town and they paint on the roads and go and motocross this way big arrows and motocross i'm going wow it's so different over here anyway i got there um i got there early i got there like on a friday or something in the afternoon and i met a couple of irish guys because i had when you're in you know when i was working the mako factory and all that i hardly anyone ever spoke english and that made it a bit tougher you know 
and so it was cool i met some irish guys and that was pretty cool and then the next thing it was night and i was making dinner or something and this guy knocked on the had a combi and it was terry i didn't even know what he looked like like you know because how do you know it's not like you're on facebook yeah, yeah, you know yeah. and, and anyway so this guy's knocking on my door i'm going oh yeah what's this about and he goes oh g'day i'm terry gunter i go oh wow that's so cool like fancy you being i said are you riding at this race he goes yeah i'm racing here too and then to make it better he goes here's another you know two starts from bozaborf and like it was just like oh my god this is the best thing ever like more mo you know more starts so i was just going oh how good's this so anyway i had a great meeting and i did much better than my minimum guarantee so I was on top of the world and then Terry, I said, what are you doing from here? Because we were riding the same race again in two weeks or three weeks, you know, uh, like a, there's multiple races in Europe. And yeah. I said, hey, where are you riding? And, and he goes, yeah, same as you. I go, oh, that's cool. Can I just hang out with you? And he goes, oh, yeah. He says, I'm going down south and I, and I ride in this stunt show. And I go, what? And he goes, yeah, riding this stunt show. And I go, oh. Oh, before I'd said I wanted to go with him, I said, what are you doing? He goes, I'm going to this stunt show. And uh, I said, what are you doing? He goes, oh, you know, jump through fire and jump cars and stuff like that. I'm going, oh, man, that's crazy. And I said, can I come and hang out? And he goes, oh, yeah, I suppose. Anyway, I got to this beautiful little town called Lagupi, which is in the south where a couple of rivers come together and it's amazing. And um, just hung out and it's like a commune this this stunt show is so classic jacques the guy who runs it he didn't speak much english but he his uh german wife did and uh she spoke a bit you know but it was just amazing it was absolutely amazing and so i was just hanging out and then anyway i went to the so i went to the show you know and terry was bullshit and he never jumped the cars you know but he jumped through the fire and everything and and so somehow he must have talked me into saying hey you know you can make a hundred bucks or whatever it was it wasn't much money but you didn't do it you didn't use any tires you know yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, you're like you rode grassy paddocks you know yeah. and they had this truck that used to bring the french call them trampoline but it's a jump you know yeah and you'd, you'd set up the jump it was all community stuff you'd have turns in making you know dinner and you'd set up this you really? wash the bikes and all that and you could live with them and eat with them all week it was amazing. It was just and what, amazing. what did it travel around? Yeah. It was pretty basic show, but they would go to these small towns. I mean, now when you see them doing, you know, doubles and backflips and everything, it's just like probably laughable. But at the time, the little towns they went to, they didn't see anything like that. So I thought it was fantastic. And it was a show. So they would put the, the spectators, if they got a thousand spectators, they were really happy. And they put them on the side so that you can't line up. It's all an illusion and stuff, you know. Yeah. I mean, we jumped the cars. I jumped the cars. Terry never wanted to jump the cars. And I just looked at it and went, man, I bottom out harder than that every lap on the motocross. I'm going to do this. And they put girls after the after the cars. And, and so you hit the jump. But the crowd can't see it because they're not on the end. So they're only on the side. So they can't see that you hit it on a slight angle. So if you come up short you don't land on the girls and kill them, you land beside them. Yeah, but yeah. But the spectators can't tell and they go, woo sacre bleu, you know. And um, anyway, it was awesome. I just loved it in between. It was it was like a base. You could get stuff there. And, yeah, And right. there was there was all these girls. They had, a, they had a section called ballet and they had these all these girls, so it was cool. There was all these girls around. 
and um yeah it was just it was a great time you know i was just loving life and um had a base and just doing everything i wanted to do you know it was amazing so um so that only that didn't really change for years i did it for three years or whatever and um, i think the next year was when jen was on board and then her stepdaughter uh kim came um came in and um you know she was coming over there so i, I went from having a combi you know like i I bought the combi in 79 when I was, you know, I slept in the car park of the Mako factory for seven months in my combi and just made it happen, you know. Loved it, but it was um, a bit tough there because, you know, I didn't know anyone and no one in the factory really wanted to speak any English. So, you know, didn't have any, I didn't have anything. I didn't have any radio or anything that would talk, you know, eventually somebody told me about radio luxembourg and you could find that and then it was english and i you know had a little bit of something but you know i was focused on that must have been a bizarre time it, it to live was. by yourself in the back of a van yeah at the mako factory in germany yeah and no one spoke english and, yeah and you could it speak was German. it was wild it really was um yeah it was in some ways it was easy because i was doing what i wanted to do you know what, what work were you doing in the factory oh man it was the weirdest thing ever happened in in a way because it was a big misunderstanding and and i understand it more now than i did at the time because i was only a teenager you know and so ross king was a mako importer and something went wrong and and i just said well i can't afford to be over there without work you know um and so somehow we thought i was going to get work at the mako factory so I took off and flew to Stuttgart or whatever um, and then this little town of Faffingen and got a train there and and then walked from the train station to this little factory and I met the secretary and uh, she spoke a bit of English and anyway I said, oh, I'm here for the job. I'm Jeff Ballard. I'm here, you know, Ross King's the importer and, and she was all confused and she goes no there's no job what what do you mean i go no there's a job like there's got to be a job i've got no money i mean i had some money i had but i had to buy a van you know i think I probably i probably had two grand you know and um and she goes no no that's not right and i go oh yeah it's got to be it's got to be and i said can you just you know please check again you know so um hans christine or something he was one of the other managers of the factory and he came over and he just go no no and i go no yeah you got it i was just staying in the pub local pub and i came back the next day and um i said yeah here i am i'm back you know if you talk because it was all telex stuff back then you know you didn't really ring it was different time zones and you know way before fax machines or anything else so you did telex and and they sent him a telex and and um anyway it wasn't working you know and i, and I go yeah if you sort it out and they go no there's no job and i go it's got to be a job it's got to be a job and they must have gone damn this kid's come all the way from australia <laughs> thinking he's got a job so i was pretty upset but i went back to the pub stay the night thinking they've got to sort it out and i came back the next day and they go yeah and i went yeah see i told you i knew there was a job you know but i didn't figure it out and you know to be honest i didn't really like the germans they were not friendly it's not like in australia where you walk down the footpath and you yeah and they you just give them a nod yeah. you know i 
I'd look at them and they just stare at you like, what yeah. are you doing? And it was weird. So I, I felt pretty uncomfortable. In Germany. I was in, yeah. we were in Germany driving through and I was just like, I just don't know about this place. It's, it's not remember, like that too much now compared to what it was. I've been if it was back, even, if it was, it was even worse. worse, yeah, then <laughs> that would have been worse. heavy. Yeah. So, you know, I didn't like them, but now all these years later, I, you know, that was just how it was, you know, and it was an older generation, a lot more do. You know, it's 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 more like home, and the supermarkets are more like home, and it was all just mm. different, you know. But um, yeah, it was uh, it was just you know, it was it was weird for me to sort of adapt, you know, and just block it out and just go, oh, well, no one's going to talk to you. And I had some pretty funny experiences because you know they put me in the race section, which was nice. So mm. so I just helped out and you know cleaned bikes and filters and swapped suspension or did whatever and then at first they wouldn't let me ride the test bikes but then after a while they realized you know he's fine and uh and so i just put hours on bikes and stuff like that that's pretty so, cool yeah it was it was i mean i i didn't really know what i was gonna get and i didn't to be honest i probably didn't care that much but i was hoping it might be a job something like that but it was all under the table pay of course you can't just front up in germany and yeah. say I wanted, you know, there was no, I didn't, yeah. I didn't have any permits, so that's why I realised later that they were actually really nice. They did a lot for me, and then there was only one other young guy whose name was Betzelbacher, and his old man was a famous motocross racer, and he was the he was the last guy to win the. They didn't call it a world championship in the early days; it was the European Championship. So. He was famous because he won the European Championship, which was sort of the World Championship because yeah. no one really was doing it. Anyway, he was a pretty young guy, and he was um, he was oh, the same age as me, more or less, you know. And he was trying to develop the one two five Mako, which was a pretty bad bike. But he spoke a bit of English, you know, and I kept saying, oh, I've got to, I can't afford to live in the pub. I've got to get a van. And I had this dream about this. I'd been over, you know, six days early and seen some of these old, you know, Merc vans. We didn't have really high aces and stuff at that stage, but it was like an earlier high ace, you know. Yeah. And I just went, oh, wow, a van, you know, and you have your bike in there next to you and you sleep there and all this shit that I was thinking was the go, you know. Yeah. So anyway, that was my dream. and I, But I needed to, too. I couldn't afford to just keep staying in the pub, you know. So I kept saying, you know, can you help me? Can you help me? I want to find a car. And, you know, because I didn't know how to do any of that stuff. And he kept sort of saying, oh, yeah, I talk to my dad and blah, blah. And anyway, I got to the point where I was desperate and I knew that he only he only lived like 100 metres from the factory it was crazy so so i went up there one night knocked on the door and um the kid answered the, the door and i said man i'm i'm here i'm pleading you gotta help me you know and uh, he left me at the door went back talked to his old man and then his old man came back he's obviously said it knew him a bit and he just said you know tomorrow you know we'll look tomorrow or something anyway and then he found this combi and he was trying to tell me about a combi and i was just like no not a combi you can't put a motorbike in a combi you know the engines in the back and it was just it was stuffing my dream you know i was going no no it's yeah. no, good it's a good it's a good car you know and it's like oh shit where do i put the motorbike and and so he had a guy who was into you know metal and fabricating and took me around there so we bought it took me around there and it was where we made 
the bike rack on the back you know i was literally gonna joke and interject before and be like and that's how the ballard's bike rack was born and i was like no nah, i won't yeah, fucking yeah, ruin yeah. the story but it's, that's literally what it's happened sort of in the way it is and we've got photos. oh my god and we got photos of that and it was it was actually the most amazing setup for me because i took the front wheel off the bike which gave it a bit more security and when i crossed borders and stuff i was doing stuff you know and when I cross borders, you know, you're supposed to have um, you're supposed to have everything organised in a carnet or something if you cross border. Yeah, you know, they don't yeah, want you to yeah. sell a bike and all that sort of stuff. And and you know, back when we used to ride the fire trails in uh, the mountains, every now and then you'd find a like a number plate on the you know falling off some guy's DT or something, and we just go, ah, oh, cool number plate. Anyway, so I took a number plate with me um, to Europe. You know, and we used to do it a lot in the early days of six days. And uh, back then, um, dealers could, re- you know, th- they had the rego papers and they yeah. put it in a typewriter and tick away and uh, and then you were supposed to take it to the RTA or whatever they called it and you get a stamp, you know, but Germans didn't know that. So we just typed up our own rego and you didn't present it in front of everybody because it wasn't the thing to do, but it was your standby, you know. So the bike was on the back and the guy would come to the to the window you give him your passport and you just look in and go oh, camping you know whatever yeah see you later and you look in the rear vision mirror as you're going away or the side mirror and you could see the guy looking back oh, damn there's a motorbike on the back of there i should have checked that you know so it was so good that it, nothing you know it was unreal i just loved that combi and and it really wasn't until years later when jen came over with kim and i went well we can't all live in a combi and uh so I bought a Mercedes 508, which is a bit more like a box van sort of thing, you know. Yeah. And uh, it's had a few more mouths to feed. How how did you and, and Kim stay in contact? Were you just like writing letters to each other and stuff oh, like that? Oh, Jen. Jen's then? my wife oh, and Jen, Kim's sorry. a stepdaughter. Yeah, so, yeah, maybe a little bit, maybe. Um, but really, it was as soon as, I, as soon as I was going out with her, that was it. We're going to Europe. So there wasn't a lot. There was... I, I knew her, you know, um, but, you know, we weren't really together until, um, you know, I guess just before the season, I go, let's go, I'm doing it. And, and she's going, oh, what's Kim going to do for school? And I'm going, I don't know, <laughs> correspondence. So, yeah. so we did correspondence and she got all that sorted out and it was great and it was a great experience for her. Um, yeah, so, you know, it was, it was a little bit nerve-wracking for me because I'd never, you know, had a girlfriend and had another and a daughter and, you know, mouse to feed. And, man, it was, I was always scraping it, you know, so I was like, wow. And the stunt show was awesome because, um, you know, Jen, Jen used to go uh, with Sharky, had this crazy old 350 Kawasaki with a ladder welded to it. You know, it was funny. It was all steel. And, um, and she used to, you know, they had three girls go on this ladder and Jen used to go to the top and go upside down you know look quite cool you know and then Kim learnt we used to live in a railway yard no one ever from the railway department said what are you doing it was just so casual over there in this little Lagoopy town and uh, you know we taught Kim a few things and and you can you ride what they call side saddles so you put your your left foot on the right foot peg and and you hold the handlebars but you're on the right right side of the bike and then you can put a leg out and when a whole bunch of girls do it it looks kind of good you know so that was a bit more basic for her jen was doing something a bit more tricky and i was jumping through huge fires like 
first time I went through it, like Terry, <laughs> Terry used to do it. And there was never any practice. It was always Mickey Mouse, you know. There was n- never anything. And Jack was a character and he used to... It was all illusion, you know. So he would, you know, something would be happening over there. So then he would, um, you know, get ready to light it. And I guess they used diesel and petrol or something. I don't really know. But um, so we were getting ready and there was two jumps and, and Terry was there. And he'd done it before. And the Makos used to you know flood them to start them and i was wiping crankcases i was paranoid that the thing was going to catch, catch on, on fire. fire anyway so he just i just said you know you just tell me when to go and then they lit the fire and it was so massive so i i just went holy shit you know and then i looked at him expecting him to say yeah wait wait it's too crazy now and then he just goes go i'll go oh my god so we just took off and jumped through there and it was really nothing it was just this you know hot flash you know yeah but at the at the time it was just it was such a relief to get through that and i go man this whole thing is just like fun everything's fun so we get to hang out through the week it's a base you know you know eat together do all this stuff it was it was it was it was fun times you know europe was great but it ended of course when mako went bust you know yeah so so that was the basically the the ticket home was Mako kind yeah. of going under. Yeah, well, so, um, you know, Jen loved Europe and... Um, How long were you there for together all up? Um, I was there four years. Jen yeah. was there, I think, two years. Yeah. Did you just learn much French in that time? She learned more than um, me, but before that, I had a, a girlfriend before Jen who... who was studying law in Paris and of course she spoke French pretty well so when someone would stick their head in the door and talk to me you know as the driver or something I just lean back hey mate just talk to her like <laughs> seriously <it's, laughs> I, I don't want to be embarrassed here so uh, yeah. so I got through with the basics you know same with German I, German was a bit easier for me and I got by you know and some of that was pretty funny too because for ages I got a little bit better all the time at the factory and you know just got to know people even though they weren't you know super friendly just got the system got better and i knew a few things and i remember saying uh i used to say to people you know can see me halfen bitte thinking i was saying can you help me please and i said it forever <laughs> and then one day I said it to this guy and he goes why do you want me to have you <laughs> i go what he says it's not can see me halfen bitte it's can see me helfen bitte i go no for ages I've been saying can you have me please <laughs> so you know but we got by it was fine you know basics it's just basics you know if you had some drama with a car and you were trying to explain something wrong engineering you know just hope nothing like that happens so yeah funny times you know but great you know look back and think that was fun how, how did you feel about going home like was it hard to um i guess like hard to accept that you were having to go home like did you feel like there was unfinished business or well actually it's not exactly the way it happened so i finished that year in 82 and and just you know went home um and then i then i heard you know that it, it had gone under and it was like wow you know so that gave me less time to get anything else organized and then um kawasaki australia 
sponsored me to stay there but I really didn't want to do that you know so um I uh yeah I just went oh how do I get out of here you know like you know within reason I mean I I wanted to ride the six day like I'd been doing every year and uh so I said to Kawasaki you know can can you help me can you can we get some sort of bike and they uh they go no mate we got no interest in overseas so you know our budget's all for here and I said oh so you don't care if I um ride anything else and they go no if it's overseas you can do whatever you want really yeah yeah so it's kind of at the end of the season too you know in a general sense it's um september or october yeah so anyway i had a friend ted goddard and he knew the product manager in america jeff smith who was twice 500 world champion in the 60s and a pommy guy who ran uh, k&m anyway back and forward and so ended up getting a, a bike to do the welsh six day in 83 and and part of the deal was it was like a trial you know i wanted to go to america once once mm-hmm. uh europe was over i sort of felt like i could beat the yanks you know and um so we made some sort of a deal where if i did well against the yanks then i get a ride so um i had a terrible six day it was a it was a bad one but it didn't matter in the end because jeff smith was pretty pretty cool and as far as special test times i beat all the yanks i just lost trail time because of the stuff up with the organizers it was very unfair for about 10 people got dotted and one, mm. one of them that so it didn't you know he didn't he knows he knows and he just went now i was just didn't i don't care it's just special test times and yeah you you were beating them so so i got a ride and um you know and i i didn't know any other way of getting into the states um so and i didn't know much about canon but it wasn't a bad bike you know but most of the press never thought it was a that great a bike but um but anyway i'd been because the front disc brake came out on kx's that year 83 was the first year they had them and that was big that was a big deal you know um and once i got used to the disc brake on it i was going man this is the best thing ever um was it hard to get used to no not at all no yeah. it had it had enough feel you know drums didn't really have feel no and you know especially in off-road you go through a creek you don't have a break at all mm. like it was terrible so you know discs would work underwater we just couldn't believe it <laughs> and uh that so would have been like alien technology it was like why did they take this long to come up with this stuff you know so like I had, you know, Kawasaki gave me KX500 and uh, and KDX200 and the KDX didn't have one. So I put one on it, you know. I welded a bracket on or got some dude in, you know, to weld, put it on the back of the uh, the fork leg, you know, the holder for the caliper and all that and just adapted it on there. And I went, this, this is the go. I've got to have disc, you know. So so then I was organising the, um, the ride and I said, has this thing got a disc on? They go, no. I go, oh man has to you know and can i bring one and put it on and then the guys i was dealing with went oh yeah you know <laughs> and when i got to the factory they were made in england at that stage the you know? yeah it used to be a um, canadian company and but they'd moved it to uh clues which is uh, used to be called ccm way back in the day but it's family who were you know making bikes and stuff anyway i turned up there and went yeah g'day here i am and 
where's my bike and here's my disc i want to weld on there they're going no way you know they were paranoid about some sort of liability and so i argued with them for quite a while and in the end they presented some sort of thing to sign to saying you know i'm not going to sue them or something and they um you're like this is the opposite of that <laughs> this, yeah this is gonna well they were I'm probably worried it was going to break, break off or yeah, something yeah. you know so yeah. anyway um so then i i got this guy he could well man he did a beautiful job no you know because you can't penetrate too much because then the fork won't go together yeah, yeah. anyway yeah. he did everything right everything was perfect rode the six day had no trouble at all with the brake didn't realize that in the background of this johnny martin was my future teammate so johnny martin is the dad of um jeremy and alex martin oh yeah 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. so um he was a great guy best he is teammate. a really nice guy yeah I'd, oh man i had no idea that oh right yeah, yeah he owns right. millville motocross yeah, i've stayed track. there with him yeah oh yeah right yeah, yeah, yeah great great family amazing people yeah so small world eh? It's yeah crazy so anyway um i get the deal with can-am and they paid more money than anyone else but yeah they also hadn't won really and they you know they were hungry for it and you know i guess some people thought their bikes weren't as good as the other and that's why they maybe pay you more but anyway yeah uh, so i turn up there and i met johnny martin for the first time and he just goes man it's the greatest thing ever you just talked him into having this disc because because jeff smith said if he's, if he has no trouble in the six day then we'll put discs on the front you know wow so it was it was good so we had discs and i i think we you know over there the factory just bought kawasaki parts and put them on there i'm yeah. pretty sure that's how they did it but we had discs and the production bikes didn't have them you know we had you know standard bikes that was pretty much standard you know we had a few things maybe from the factory but not not a big deal and um anyway yeah i just got to know johnny and it was awesome stuff and uh what a hard work and hard training really Unreal. so he was like that too oh he was nuts yeah so i um i filmed for a red bull tv show it was actually a european i, I never ended up even seeing the tv show that we filmed for him but we stayed there after the millville national in maybe four, fifteen, sixteen. 15 16 it was a few years ago yeah and um and yeah, that was the first time I'd I'd met Johnny. Yep. I knew the boys. Yeah. And and he was just the coolest guy. Like he <laughs> was taking us around everywhere. And I knew he rode back in the day, but I, yeah. I didn't know to, yeah. to that extent. Yeah. But the boys, man, are fucking animals. Yeah. Like Jeremy yeah. and Alex and, and they had there was like Phil Nicoletti was there. Yeah. A couple of other big time yep. AMA yep. pros at the time. And he they those two boys made everybody else look like fucking wow pussies wow. like they all finished mountain bikes early they all came home they rode the track yeah. the day after the national they did yeah. like two 30 minute motos and a 90 minute mountain bike around the track for yeah. 90 minutes wow and yeah, yeah and johnny was just there encouraging well, the boys me. and yeah so i had no idea then that yeah. the old man was like that too oh yeah really yeah. he was good he was really good for me such a little dude too yeah yeah well he you know even more than the than the sons you know he had one leg about an inch short than the yeah. other and um he had like thick glasses he had everything going against him and we traveled you know we wow, traveled that's, everywhere that's incredible. Yeah, it was it was a, it was a great experience so so you know he he lives in minnesota as you know and all that sort of stuff but he was based in duluth minnesota at yeah. the time 
and uh you know jen you know anyway it was it took a lot to get jen to you know i'm going to america you know she goes nah i'm going why you know she's going nah don't want to i go it's good i've been before it's fine it's fine she go nah don't want it she wouldn't tell me and then eventually i said what's going on why why don't you want to go oh it's just the whole gun concert and everything she just didn't like it you know anyway um so anyway i just said well man come on let's go i'm going you know and and then she came and and she loved it but we had a the craziest experience when we first got there so we didn't go to duluth you know so i'm going now trying to make a living in america you know and barry higgins was you know with my kind of contact and he was in georgia so it's much more you know i arrive in probably february or january yeah, so it's cold pretty cold there and uh you know every all the races are in like florida or whatever you know because um all the stuff we did was pretty much um you know most of it was east coast stuff you know yeah. anyway uh, the first rounds are always in florida and a lot of them sand based and uh so anyway it was funny because at the time jeff smith you know pretty amazing background twice world motocross champion he's my boss he's just a hard ass pom you know and um anyway he said what do you want to ride and i said 500 you know a 500 rider and he goes yeah you want a 500 and i go yeah yeah sure i want a 500 and uh so when i you know he sent a 500 down to barry's shop and uh got there put this thing together and went well there's not much point practicing in the you know georgia clay and all that stuff let's go south we were jet lagged you know but we did it within a maybe a day or something yeah. we headed how far south did you go in florida uh i can't remember where you know it was it was all based around daytona we did yeah, the alligator yeah. enduro yeah, and a lot yeah. of it was uh, a lot of it was right there you know yeah. in part of daytona week you know so um anyway i got this 500 out and uh what model 500 was it uh it was an 84 model motocrosser yeah right can am yeah can am yeah. yeah anyway I knew nothing about Can them. Can you Google that, Rones? Yeah, I want to see what they look like. What? Oh. 1984 Can Am 500. Let's go. It it was the most... I've never rode a 500 to this it day. It was the most violent thing I've ever ridden in my go, life. Hey, click the, <clears throat> click the shopping tag. Let's buy one. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think there'd be many around. Look at that thing. That's pretty sick. No. It, it was... <laughs> you know, like, there was nothing wrong with it except it didn't handle and it had too much power, but... <laughs> Um, so anyway, I, I got this thing and, what a badass and, boy. uh, and I wanted to, it was pretty funny because <clears throat> we didn't know where to ride. You know, we just went, oh man, I've got to find sand. Anyway, we got down into Florida, we had started getting sandy and, um, and I went, oh, we asked some people, you know, we, we're jet lag, we're over it, you know, and said, so, oh, is there anywhere around here, you know, to ride and, and now we're in the deep South where they speak funny a lot of them you know i mean i was kind of used to it but anyway so they say oh there's this track there's this track up this uh like a dirt road you know so anyway i had another friend in the car and um we just went up this and it's night now so you got this little tunnel of lights and you're trying to figure out oh you know this sounds a bit weird you know and uh (laughs) anyway we're going and going and going this is longer than i thought it was going to be anyway and eventually it came out in this bit of a clear you could see grass mode a bit and then saw ngk spark plugs i go yeah there is some sort of track here you know 
so that was it we had a sliding camper like an f-150 sliding camper that we'd only bought you know day before or something and the bike was in the back we didn't have a trailer we we're going to get a trailer we were pretty disorganized and um so we just put it in the back and it was banging around on the cabinets and you know the whole thing cost nothing anyway it was cheap but it was you know not the ideal setup so we took the bike out and put it against the, the van and then just crashed we were just so jet lagged you know anyway um so you know let's say middle of the night or whatever i'm dead asleep and jen wakes me up in this panic and she's going and she's going jeff 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 i go and i wake up and she goes someone's trying to steal your bike (laughs) and so i just you know i am asleep and now i'm bounced out of the bed at the back and i go to the, the the doors at the back of the camper you know and I open the door and I can't see anything because this guy's lights are like on full beam or whatever and they're just in my, I can't see, yeah, you know. Yeah. But I know there's someone right there. And so this all happens in about one second because <laughs> I just leapt out of bed and and I said something like, you know, what are you doing or whatever. And then I, I passed out and I collapsed onto my knees and then fell backwards and hit my head on the ground behind me just like I'd been shot, <laughs> you know. Anyway... Oh. Jen thought I'd been shot and the other guy thought I was shot and he he pulled the blanket over thinking, okay, he's shot Jeff. Um, he'll shoot her next. He'll think there's only two in the camper. I'll probably survive or something. That's what we were thinking. Why, why didn't you come out and help us, you know? So anyway, I just had low blood pressure in the days and I used to, if I got up quick, I'd yeah. just pass out, you oh. know? It was oh, just so weird. No. But to make it worse, when Jen got out and she was screaming at this guy, and um and he just got in his car and took off so it kind of made it worse and then she's down looking at me and she oh you know and she's looking for you know anything blood and whatever just and i'm coming to go what was was all that about (laughs) anyway it was pretty funny and then you know of course hardly slept through the night was all weird and everything and then in the morning we could see this bit of a shack over there and we went oh wonder if that guy had anything to do with it so we went over there and he was like total you know redneck kind of you know could hardly understand us seriously you you really struggled to understand him anyway we got it out of him and he thought we he came over to check it out he thought we were all young kids drugged out i'd collapse because i was a drug addict you know (laughs) and then some other chick was just screaming at him and he just goes oh for christ i'm getting out of here you know and he just took off so it was just and it was funny because Jen was paranoid about the gun, gun cultures yeah, going yeah. in there. And this was her like second or third day or something in America and all that stuff. But anyway, so I got to ride the bike and hated it. Absolutely hated it. Thought, I can't make a living on this bike. It's the worst thing I've ever ridden, you know. Really? And, you know, three-hour cross-country in the sand whoops. It's like... On a 500. You know, it's just such That's a gnarly disgusting. 500. So anyway, so I got down to the race... And I met Jeff Smith for the first time, my boss. <clears throat> and he says, uh, what do you think of the bike? I said, oh, nah, not much. <laughs> and he goes, you wanted a 500. He said, nobody likes those 500s. And I go, why didn't you tell me that? He goes, you just said you wanted a 500. I gave you a 500. Anyway, I said, oh, I really don't like it. I hate it, you know. And he goes, all right, you can ride you can ride my bike. I've got a 250. So didn't seem very professional at the start but it, but i took off and uh you know three hour cross country and 
And my contingency back then was really good, but it was just for first or second outright. Nothing yeah, else. Okay. Can-Am didn't care. Didn't care, you know. And it was fair enough in a way. Um, but I got... I chased these two 400 Huskies. Husky was massive in the States back then. It was just everybody was on Husky, all the top guys. Yeah. And there was two guys on 400 Huskies. Um, I think it was Melton and... Uh, um, I don't know, someone else. But um, anyway, I was like, it was ridiculous. I was like 15 seconds behind them the whole race. And, and they, the boards kept saying, they're just there, they're just there. And I was just out of whack the whole time. I tried so hard. And uh, yeah, basically, I was just lying on the ground at the end of it. And I just went, I made nothing. I didn't make one cent. You know, cause really? I, got, I won the 250 class and I got third out, Rob, but I got nothing. And, and Jeff Smith kind of was impressed you know though and he just went well okay so and he gave me some money um for just be, because he wanted to you know mm -hmm. so he gave me i think 250 bucks or something which back then's maybe like a grand now or something so it was like that was decent you know it wasn't in my contract anyway um yeah i had the craziest year ever and um you know i ended up it was so nuts i i won some races um outside of the series so the series was called hair scramble yeah um which was three hour cross country and it was the only national series at the time so there was the gncc but that was only a small really? series it was only east of the mississippi at the time and we used to ride them for practice but if we won them we never got a cent it was not it wasn't it wasn't the main series at the mm. time you know but they were all the same three hour cross country um so um yeah anyway i How did rode that work did you you obviously like pulled in for fuel and stuff but yeah. like that's pretty much your only stops was just fuel just one one stop no camelbacks existed really you know? so we stopped it only took six seconds to fuel um, so you could do one and a half hours on a tank of fuel. Yeah, back then. that was one of the things. A lot of guys had to do too, and the Can-Ams had a uh, an awesome fuel tank. It was yeah, right. it was actually pretty much made for the cross country market in America. So it was it was decent. It was it was one of the things that was good about the Can-Am. It had a it had a Rotax engine, an unusual thing where the Kickstarter shaft is hollow and the gear lever comes through the Kickstarter shaft. So the Kickstarter is quite low. Um, it doesn't happen on the 500, but on the 250. Yeah, right. If you look at that picture, maybe. Which one? Um, that one looks like it. This yeah. one down here? Yeah. It says 500, but it looks like a... Yeah, no, it is a 500, yeah. But if you if you make it a 250... They're a pretty, like... Um, yeah, cool, yeah, that one on the top life. left there looks like a 250. Yeah, that is a 250, and you might see. But anyway, the, the gear lever comes out through the... Through the um, yeah, there it is. There. Yeah, through the Kickstarter shaft. So wow. it used to, it's a low Kickstarter. So for dead engine starts, which cross country uh, are, it was good. You could get a good kick. We used to get good starts, and um, that's the wrong fuel tank. That that's a year before. Uh, oh no, it's not. Maybe it's on the other side. But anyway, they yeah, these other ones they're all showing on the left hand side. Anyway, it was a good tank, you know, and we could go yeah. an hour and a half, and and often depending in the sand that's wild it eh? was pretty wild yeah and you just um, you didn't have half. to stop your uh, you didn't have to stop your bike yeah you know the rules in Australia we've got more rules than anyone but you have to stop your uh. bike someone would hold your clutch as they're fueling you'd 
take the goggles off the guy fueling or the guy holding your clutch put it on and swap and just go and if you had another second or two you might have a, a splash of water or something but um yeah no one invented camelbacks back then so every, you know and that was to be honest that was one of my biggest things that helped me was i mean all my mates call me the camel because i just you know i don't ever use camelbacks or drink systems really uh you know i never do four days six days i never wear them and uh never whenever i go try i don't even yeah just don't really use them you know so um i had no trouble you know and everyone else had trouble so that was one of the things i was thirsty at the end but i was fine you know and um yeah it made a difference you know but anyway it was a pretty decent bike but i went through that year you know even though i won uh, some of the you know enduros like we know um the qualifiers and things like that i won the championship in on the last race there was four guys who could win it on the last race and they let us four go one minute in front of the whole field which was pretty cool so we didn't get taken out by someone and um but i won i uh, there was only one guy out of the whole out of the four who could beat me and if I got second to him, I would still win. There was only mm. one, and that was Johnny Martin. So he was in there with a chance. And that's the way it worked. It was the craziest thing ever. But to make it even funnier, I won the series, and I never won a race. All I got was seconds and thirds, and I won. And on the last race, I ended up second. Yeah. I challenged. I had something a little bit going wrong. It was pretty funny because... Um, we you know they knew they had a pretty damn good chance of winning a championship their first championship and so they employed a film crew I've never seen this film oh god and, I want to watch um, it and they employed this this film crew and we were we were pretty disorganised but somebody before the start said oh yeah I think it's um half hour laps you know so you go okay six hour race. I mean, for uh, three hour race, six six laps. You know, mentally you're prepared for six laps. Back then, we used to do a siding lap. You know, so I was riding around. I I used to ride heaps of six days and things without gloves. I used to hate gloves. They were pretty shit in the early days. Fuck that. And so uh, I took off I can't on the siding lap. Being that good either. <laughs> no, they weren't that good. <laughs> So I had to feel right, and I took off in the siding lap, and I went, I just don't feel right. This, you know, this is the this is the, where it all going to come down to this last round. And so I stopped, and I took my gloves off and put them down my pants and then just took off and went, yeah, I'm ready. This is it. I'm going to do it. <laughs> anyway, so mentally I'm prepared for six laps. And I had some sort of issue. I can't remember now. My bike was hard to start. And um, anyway, um, no, it was hard to start if it fell over or did something i don't know why i knew that but it was something that happened that made me think okay geez i hope that doesn't happen you know anyway johnny was winning it and um and i caught him and i thought i you know i don't have to win but i'm scared now someone's going to catch us and beat us you know so i went to pass him and i stuffed it up and i did a sort of a slow motion sort of endo not no big deal but you know weird sort of crash and I ran back to my bike before it stopped and I got it, got on it before it stopped, you know, and I just went, oh, man, just just don't do that because if, if it was hard to start, I'd lose it, you know. Mm. So anyway, I took off again and Johnny had pulled a little bit on me because of the, you know, crash. Anyway, and um, I came around thinking, okay, 
mentally I was geared for for six laps. So I I came in. We were very disorganised. So I must have looked hilarious. So I came in on the third lap thinking, I'm going to fuel. So I came in, and of course, no one you you don't talk to each other. You just fuel, yeah, you know. Yeah. So I fueled and um, took off again. And so then I'm going. When I come around, I'm hoping like hell there's going to be the checkered flag, you know. And um, if not, then I'll have to do one more lap. But because of halfway, I might have to get a splash of fuel, you know. So I came around there just praying that the checkered flag was going to be there and I could see it wasn't out. And so then my pits were just before it. So I went in thinking just give me one liter two liters or something you know and so this has been filmed so i've never seen so must be so funny so i'm then i'm arguing with them and it's all happening so quick because it only takes six seconds anyway so they just hold the thing on for like two seconds so i'm trying to push the fuel can away and they're pushing it back and fuel's going everywhere and we're having like this fighting match of pushing this thing away and they say to me you've got three more laps or something to go so it was like 20 minute laps not 30 or something yeah anyway so i let them put the fuel in but mentally i was gone like my hands were blistered and mentally i was like are you kidding i have to do three more laps you know so i still had to do like another hour or something and i was raw you know so anyway I battled around and I just kept looking over my shoulder and no one else was coming and Johnny was going to win it, but I was going to win the championship and that's how it happened, you know. And um, But anyway, it was funny because uh, big celebrations, you know, and um, and then, you know, Jen was there and then Jeff Smith and Jen weren't getting on all that well and then he wanted to fly us to New York for some thing, sponsorship, and he wasn't going to bring her and then oh, it was just, it was crazy. Anyway, um, what was crazy about that was I, I won the championship and never won one race and then the next year I turned up and I won the first four in a row. Like, and I just went, how good's this, you know? And you could drop your worst two in yeah, out of okay. the 12 or 13 round series. It was the way they did it, you know? Yeah. And then I got glandular fever and, uh, or mononucleosis, they call it over there. So I didn't know. I went, I flew all the way to California. Jeff Smith was a hard ass, as I said. And we went to this race at Shasta Dam, which is up above San Francisco somewhere. And, and, uh, man, I was ready to die. I was going, Jeff, I can't ride. And he's going, you're riding mate you're riding i'm going i can't i just can't i yeah, can't hardly get out of this chair and, and it was just so crazy and i was just having trouble sort of swallowing and mm. I was going, what's going on he's just oh whatever mate you know he was he hated feather bedding he called it anyway um i just went oh damn you know he's got no idea i'm just i'm battling and it and it started at a place called shasta dam and um so it started on dirt, but you went on to this damn road, which was bitumen, and everybody was whinging about because we were off-road racing. What, what are we racing on tar for? Anyway, I didn't even want to be there, but I got the whole shot, you know. So here I am. I mean, it was everything to win, you know. And so I I got onto the dirt, and it was pretty dry and dusty, and I got onto the dirt first, and um, I was just going, wow. You know, because in my mind, I was just, you know, Jeff Smith would 
wouldn't take no for an answer. I said, all right, I'll start, but I'll pull out, you know. And so I'm, I'm like dying, but I'm winning, so I can't pull out, and I'm just doing laps and laps. And anyway, um, in the end, it really got to me, and in the last hour, I man, I was so bad. I don't know what I finished, but I think it was what they call a throwaway. So if you didn't get in the top three or four, mm. then you threw it out, you know. Anyway, I went straight to the ambulance and then um, they took me to hospital and then they go, man, you know, you that was crazy because your spleen was so enlarged. They said, if you'd fallen off, you know, you would have ruptured your spleen for sure. And they, they said it can, you know, rupture spontaneously if it's as big as it is and all this stuff, you know. So Jeff Smith felt pretty bad, and and so I had to stay in California there for a while. Um, so then I, you know, I was I had this for a while, and so then I had to miss two rounds. Um, oh, plus you'd already thrown away yeah, the third one. Yeah, and uh, yeah, so you know, it came down to the last round again. So the three years that I was there, there was the first year there was four of us could win on the last round. The second time, three. And then the last time, four of us again. So it was pretty, it was always close, you know. But, um, yeah, I loved it. And, um, yeah, I loved America. I loved racing and got to know more and more people. And, and Jen was comfortable and loved it in many, many ways too. So, you know, it, it ended because, um, you know, I used to sort of sneak into the country every year. It was weird mm. because um, I talked to Craig Dack later when he was doing the, thing with reedy over there and it was all changed and you had you had people who organized sports visas for you and i didn't know how to do any of that stuff you know so i just used to go over with a ticket that was returned in two weeks and just you know stayed just just stayed and uh and they back in the day the americans they had like a big phone book they used to look through for your name to see if you were some sort of criminal and they go oh no you're not on the list you can go you know and um and i you know i thought the next year they're gonna go hey you said the same thing last year and you'd stayed forever you know but they didn't and uh but anyway it was always a worry i was going man i've got this job and it's great and everything's good but i'm 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 only getting paid under the table you mm. know anyway um can am decided that you know it's a huge it's a huge company they make planes and trains and all sorts of things and and they had two recreational products. One was Can-Am motorbikes, and the other was um, Ski-Doo mm. s- snowmobiles. And so they decided the motorcycle game was a tough one, and they were going to get out of it and uh, make Sea-Doo's, you know. But it was all hush hush, and they had a lot of thousands of bikes they were going to try and sell. So they didn't want to tell anyone. But we'd already uh, made a handshake agreement, you know. I- I'd won the championship, and. Um, come back you know i'd won the the enduro one which was like our one you know the uh six day qualifier series there's two and it's confusing in america they have another form of enduro that we're not familiar with um but anyway it was a handshake agreement at that stage but it was all you know good and uh, i went home via new zealand because um you know that's where jen's from and uh, my mum was a kiwi so i sort of know the place and and um yeah, so, and the first year, you know, I'd never made any money, and I, when I won the championship, I got, you know, for me, it was a lot of money. I made, they gave me a 50 grand bonus or something. Wow. And uh, so it was like, wow, I've been on the bones of Marcel, and I've got, they've got this money. So I went to New Zealand, and um, and then uh, was back where Jen used to live in 
Fongamata or Wongamata and uh, East Coast, Coromandel Peninsula stuff. And I went, if I was a bit smart, I'd I'd put this money into buying a block of land or something, which you could do back then with that sort of thing, or put it towards it. I can't remember what I paid, but anyway, um, bought a block of land, you know, thought I'll blow it if I don't do something with it. So I did that, and I was keen on, you know, New Zealand. And um, so, you know, we used to go back through there a bit, and um, yeah, next year. And then uh, back then, it's the days of Telex. And I got a telex saying, uh, from Can-Am saying, you know, bad news or something. There'd been an amnesty in America. Um, so, you know, all the Mexicans who were working, whatever, you know, come forward, we'll give you a green card. Um, and, and it was explained, like, there was so many more than the government had ever thought that they decided to crack down on the employers and they were going to have huge fines or jail sentences for him illegal aliens which is what i was referred to you know? yeah yeah so i was like wow it's all over you know it's, and it wasn't like i i could go to suzuki or kawasaki or honda or anyone they were they were all having a go you know yeah. especially husvana they were strong but i could you know i could have gone to anyone and said hey i want to ride for you but because the way it was presented it was the government it was like you don't have any proper visa so you're out and so i never even i just went that's it and uh it was pretty well i didn't even know about this for two years later because i went over with jeff eldridge to a vintage day and i saw my old boss who who lost his job too really and he ended up being the chief champ of the vintage association or something and he was at this meeting and i go there's my old boss and he goes oh i gotta tell you what really happened and you know i wanted to kill him i was like so what, surely you could have told me what what ended up really happening well you know i just did nothing so they just were trying to protect the fact that they were going to try and sell all these bikes and it didn't look good if they said hey we're stopping production and we're not making can am anymore so they felt that they could sell the bikes better if they um you know they were not going out of business so um anyway i just felt like thinking oh man you could have told me you know signed a confidentiality agreement or something yeah and uh, and i could have just said yeah i had a blue with jeff smith and i just don't want to ride from him anymore and i'll go and ride for anyone else so that's where i felt pretty dotted by can am you know i thought oh there should have been a way you could have told me uh, that was yeah. what i was doing and loving and so anyway it ended and i was a bit lost and um I don't know, I was uh, doing different things and doing a bit of work for ADB or something, but I was frustrated, man. I, You know, my talents, I wanted to be in, in the States or at least, you know, yeah. or Europe or something. And um, But then I kept thinking, oh, you know what, I don't know, maybe I should do something else. And in the background of all this was um, Al Baker, who was a pretty famous desert racer and a character and a cool guy. Um, and he used to be Johnny O'Mara's manager. Yeah, right. Um, and he was famous for sort of developing the XR Honda. Yeah. And uh, and then he went on to help develop the DR Suzuki as well. But anyway, I'd got to meet him and got to know him a little bit. In and America he, or Australia? Yeah, in America. Yeah, yeah. And um, I don't know how that all came about, but we did, you know. And uh, stayed at his place a few times. And he said, man, you should do this xr he was he, he had a business xrs only in america and he said you should do this in australia they sell a lot of xrs in australia and i go oh, okay but 
naive Jeff was like, yeah, mate, I'm just going to race for the rest of my life. Forget it, you know? Yeah, yeah. And um, anyway, so now I was in a spot. I was back in Australia. I didn't really want to be. And and I was doing a few things for ADB. And they said, um, can you um, test this XR, you know, do something on it and fill some pages? And I was going, yeah, okay. And they go, hey, I might race it, you know? So um, anyway, I thought, yeah, that's the best way to test it. Just flog it and just see how it goes, you know. <laughs> and uh, anyway, so I went in a race where you share with a guy. I was with Dave Stewart, who um, was a mate of mine. And um, so we just had so much fun, man. It was We were fighting over the bike. Give really? it back to me. We were standing out there going, So what turn. year was this? What, so what this was um look up, this was look up this bike what 88 yeah 88 this was, this was 88 xr 600 yeah 80 or was yeah. it a 650 then oh no it was a 600 yeah. but it, but i rode a 250 <laughs> it was a 250 xr oh, right so it was an 86 xr 250 which was a just of a new model it was the first single carb xr yeah um so yeah it was um there it is yeah, it was a beauty because the 85 was a twin carb, so there was big changes. It was a really, it was a decent bike. It was awesome. Yeah, um, disc brakes or disc yeah, brake. Uh, yeah, yeah, it had a on disc brake on the front only. Yeah. Um, and it was a great little bike. But at the time, um, you know, I had a mate, Peter Payne was in Honda at the time, and then he said, um, I said, you know, I wanted confidence. and Anyway, I, I you know, I, I went, man. And I was talking to so Dave what, Stewart. So what was good about this bike? Like, what do you it's what do you steering, remember about it? It steered. It was it was um, it handled pretty well, and it steered like no other bike. Really. And in the in the tight technical stuff, which it was a lot of enduro, really, um, you could ride it so fast. It was so deceiving, and it was you were not supposed to go fast on one of these things like this, but that made it more fun. You know, it was like stealth mode, made no noise. We won this race on this bike, you know. So we went back in the same ute, you know, his ute, and uh, we were just going, man, that was the most fun I think we've ever had in our life. And I couldn't stop thinking about it. And then I, then it went ding. I went, this is that bike that, that old mate said, yeah. So then I went, geez, I better ring him. So I rang him and I said, oh, you know, maybe I should do this. And he goes, you damn right, you should, you know, blah blah blah. So Peter wow. Payne was my mate in Honda at the time, and I said. I'm thinking about doing this. And he goes, that's the best idea ever. And so we'll what was you. the idea? The idea was to take on, you know, working with um, Al Baker and and be XR's only Australia. Yeah. So it was a good idea in as far as XR's were bread and butter bikes and everyone had one. And there was lots in Australia and no one specialized it was a bit like in the older days going commodores only you know yeah going, wow yeah. there's a lot of commodores so that's not a bad idea yeah and um anyway so al baker had a catalog yeah and so i went i'm gonna do a catalog and i had no business experience it was you know it was scary for me it was really like overwhelming many times the first catalog i threw it on the ground four or five times going forget it i'm not doing this because everything was on my own. My old man was a bit doom gloom, and um, he was like. So yeah. you would probably been about thirty around this time, you reckon? Um. So yeah. Uh. Yeah, I was thirty. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. By by the time I actually started in eighty eight, we've always said it started in eighty nine, but I actually started in eighty eight. So I was so twenty nine or something, yeah. you know. Yeah. 
and um that's pretty crazy eh? yeah look I guess it, it just worked you know yeah. and it, it was a timing thing and i lost my rise so i was like yeah damn frustrating you know what am i gonna do gotta do something gotta do well something do can't believe i'm actually working now mm. anyway uh, the idea what was a good point. oh and then eldridge was like yeah this is the greatest idea and 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 what was so funny was i knew nothing about four strokes right nothing and then eldridge was so embarrassing because he was putting stuff in the magazine going ballard the king of thump Uh and i'm going will you shut up about that because you know people were into four strokes and i knew nothing i didn't even hardly know they had valves you know (laughs) and uh and then i'd have guys like in the when i started it was it was um just me with a phone that you hung up on the wall you know and didn't have an answering phone or anything like that so and Honda got behind me and gave me all these bikes, and I was like, okay, the XR600, that's like a tank, man, but it was registered. So I used to race up to the post office on it with a few parcels in a backpack. And so did you ju- You just sold XRs only Australia, just sold parts for yeah. XRs? Yeah, and that's did, it. Um, I made, I used to get up early in the morning and go down to a mate's engineering shop in Penrith, like five, you know, early, and... Um, make damper rods like i went to america the first thing i did was i went over to america and and hung out with hal baker for you know a month or something and he taught me everything he could you know suspension was a big deal you know they were all a bit undersprung though you know you can improve damping in the forks by making damper rods this is back in damper rods days before cartridge and um yeah you know that sort of stuff you know you put cams and all that and um and we learned to do big fin heads and big fin heads were popular man because it was a visual thing it was like you know what, they what helped they c- uh, big, big fin big heads fin so they were they were alloy um finned you know they were not water cooled yeah so um oh yeah you know we'd extend yeah, the fins yeah, and yeah. it was just it was like branding man it was yeah. like saying just you, you've had them yeah. overdone yeah. you know um yeah. yeah so yeah you can see on the top left there that's yeah. one of ours yeah um by the look of that uh so my dad i, I wish i text him before this oh, there right. would be photos of me as a kid sitting on my like as a two two-year-old one-year-old sitting oh, on my yeah. dad's xr650 yeah and i remember it had a uh a ballard's bash plate on it oh okay and yeah. i always remember like yeah, seeing right. like, the ballard sticker so well, yeah, yeah. I, I, I remember a yeah. lot of this stuff from like when I was a yeah. kid in the shed of my okay. dad's XR650. Yeah. Well, there's a few there. There's one there that's got the roll pins going through it, which is one from America, but we went to the fins, you know, the strips on the side and yeah. What a crazy some, head. Like now, like as a kid, I would have never yeah. really known, but like looking at it now, it's a little bit more knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was just something, you know, we did, it was all just about XRs. We just specialized in them and it was, um, yeah, it was, man, guys were into them and it was, it was cool. So just what we did, mate, it was, um, fun. It was fun. And, and the bikes, you know, we were, it was surprising how well you could go on them. We, we had we started a race team too from the word go so we had some guys um racing crs for us you know so yep. we we ran the off-road team for honda that was sort of part of the deal and we thought it was a good idea too for just promotion of the of the business you know but we did a lot with xrs and um we didn't we we just raced some um crs and stuff but we didn't really do too much to them we learned you know revalving and suspension and over the time we did stuff like that but then um 
yeah and honda so i was locked into honda even though you know it was only really a sponsorship but my life was surrounded by xr's only it was branded man that was that was you and then this guy came into honda at the time his name was bell and he was a dickhead i hated him absolutely glenn. hated him no no <laughs> no no um no no not at all glenn bell was like the best <laughs> ever he's the nicest dude <laughs> he was in the, the world best ever. i can't remember the guy's first name but uh. anyway the guy before him i think was Stuart Strickland. he was a great bloke and yeah. anyway I ended up with this guy and i go what a dick you know and it, and it was good for me because it was like i went man I, i've got to put up with this guy i don't like him but um and so then you know things were changing and we were you know riding some crs and things and and other people were saying oh you're important stuff from white brothers and all these sort of people and can you get this for me and it's like oh, well we're sort of exercise only you know and and so then it um we just went yeah yeah let's hey, let's diversify so we we went xrs only enduro cross you know we put two names out there and so under the enduro cross banner we could just do whatever you know it didn't matter if you had a whatever a bloody osser or whatever if we could find something and it was worth bringing in and thought it was a decent product then we'd do it you know so we started growing outside of the XR. XR was still bread and butter. And was was XR's only like popular sh- straight away? Straight away. Like it did yeah. well for you straight, straight away. Straight away, yeah. And as a non-business guy, it was overwhelming a bit, you know, because my old man was a great guy, but doing gloom, you know. and yeah. um, and um, Too hard basket. Yeah, he, you know, he was like, you've just got to work hard and you can't employ anybody. They cost you twice as much as you think. Yeah, and yeah. All that stuff. So, um, yeah, it was hard. So then Dave Stewart ended up the guy who I rode the XR with. He was my first employee and, um, and he had more mechanical skills. I had like zero, you know, really. I mean, I couldn't mechanical, but in four strokes it was like bad. So... It was such a relief to get my first employee and then just kept building on it, you know. Um, I wasn't actually that gung-ho. I didn't really care. You know, I wanted to have a business. I just thought, oh, this is cool. I can have a business and keep riding because yeah. I love riding. And, and it just sort of got to the point where I was holding it back more than I was doing anything, you know. Yeah, because uh, you weren't like all in. I wasn't really all in. I was conservative, you yeah, know. And, yeah. I, and I started with nothing and I, you know... I borrowed a little bit of money from parents and couldn't wait to pay it back. Did that in the first year and and I was conservative, you know, but I, I worked hard but I, you know, made sure we were only ever open on weekdays and then we we raced on weekends and, you know, just went and went. So, uh, you know, I was conservative really. Um, and anyway, um, you know, soon after, I guess... Um, you know, I'd been going all, all these six days and the final motos in six days at times were just, they're not like it anymore, but they were absolutely epic, like grass track, golf course, final motos. I remember you know? seeing some of that stuff yeah, back in the day it and was just thinking it looked incredible. Just amazing. And and we used to finish a six day in the final motos and stuff and go, that's just unbelievable how good that is, you know. And um, Eldridge had done a six day and um, different people and... Hans Applegren had done a six day and anyway uh you know Eldridge was the magazine guy and Hans Applegren was a Husqvarna importer at the time and had secretaries and all that stuff and and I had sort of the track knowledge and experience of tracks and stuff and so yeah that's how the Thumpin' Hats started we all got together and um 
and just said, hey, you know, we don't care. Like, whatever's out there now, we don't care. We, we This is just a hunch, but we think it's a good one. And um, we're just going to do, we're going to do this race series, you know, and we'll have a pro class and we'll have this and we'll have that. But we'll have all these rules, you know, like it's all about the track. Like people get carried away with, you know, worrying about spectators, yeah, worrying about, you know, making money from them coming through the gate or whatever. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> and then having to um, have prize money and all that. So we had rules, no prize money, no matter what. Um, can only be one day of racing because we want to start on grass. Can't be, you know, something we're trying to water into powdery berms for the second day. It's yeah, just got to be Lone yeah. Town, you know. Yeah. It's got to be, um, you know, um, we, we changed some rules just as we went a little bit because we, you know, we, it has to be natural terrain. Um, and, uh, yeah, we just went like that and we just went, let's see how it goes, but we're pretty sure it'll go. Oh, my God, it just went nuts. And what was funny about it was at the time all of the pros like the Michael Burns, I think, was maybe there at the same time. I mean, he was he was awesome later on and, um, you know, Chad Reed and different pros wrote it, you know, or later wrote it. But at the time, they're looking going, there's no prize money. as if we're going to ride that, you know, what's all That's that about? That's crazy got to, those dudes ended up racing an event that had no prize money. Yeah, so... Purely based on there the was, merit there was of rules. how good the event yeah, was. Yeah, you could not do it, you know. So um, so what happened then was it just took off, mate. It was unbelievable. And because Eldridge owned the magazine, it was just bigger than Ben-Hur. And then all the manufacturers, like every single manufacturer sponsored it. Like everyone wanted in, you know. And um, so... It, and people used to come and watch it. Like so many people would watch it. And people would be on the side of the track going, I could do that, mm. you know. If you go to a modern not thing. Not the intimidating jumps. It's not the, the intimidating stuff. And they go. It's very relatable. And, and it's like the tracks are so wide, you know, the pros are going here. And, you know, even if they're lapping me, there's plenty of room. I don't feel, I, don't, I feel like I can go to work on Monday or something, you know. But it was like, it just took off though. We had Schmetz came out and, you know, yeah. and uh, Shane and and Daryl King Road and all these top guys. But but anyway, so the first year or two, it was um, the pros was um, Heffernan and um, Armstrong. They were, the, they were the two fastest in the pro class, you yeah. know. And they were battling it out and they got really good at riding that stuff, you know. They, they what might, bikes were they on? Were they on XRs um, and stuff? No, they were on Huskies. Yeah. Uh, Armstrong, I'm not sure exactly. Oh, he was on a KDM. Yeah. Yeah, he was on a KDM and um, Heffo was on a, uh, yeah, he was on a Husky, you know. And um, anyway, these guys battled and battled and got better and better at this stuff, you know. And the pros were, I guess, back in the background laughing a bit going, mate, they're winning, so whatever, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, no prize money, but, you know, you know, Heffo was a great rider and so was Armstrong. Obviously, Des Nations team back in the time with um, Armstrong and Heffo made a living a bit on moto, so it was good. But at that stage, they were retri retired pros and they went, oh, let's go and do this for fun and, and then they got into it, you know, and then they were going, wow, how could this? Meanwhile, the pros were back there going, yeah, right, we're going to ride this prize money. No, so... So then the manufacturers all started going, 
this is bigger than anything out there. We want to win it. So then, of course, the contingency comes into it and they sign a contract and they go to, you know, um, whoever, you know, burn and they go, right, you've got to ride the thumping ats, you know, and we'll give you a contingency if you win it and we'll give you, I don't know, whatever, you know. So they indirectly got money. Yeah. Um, but, and it was awesome. We went through these years of having these tracks and, and it was all about the track. No matter what, you know, we, we did it through clubs. It was all non-profit. We didn't want to make a cent. We couldn't make a cent. It was nothing about that. And so they, there wasn't any self-penalizing start gates at the time that were transportable. So that was one of my jobs too. I made those gates and I would transport them. I would even have a little, you know, stall at the thing. I raced the pro class and the over 35s. Man, it was nuts. And I'd go all the way to Queensland and I used to be paranoid about people open in the shop so i would just drive all night to come back i just was like what the hell am i doing you know it was pretty crazy but the thing just was taking off and taking off and it, and it became televised and it was so much bigger than the australian motocross championship it wasn't even funny you know? that is crazy and these huge events were happening and we how had many a, people were you getting to these things oh it was maxed every everything was maxed out it was like within no time every class was full but how many spectators Oh, thousands, but yeah, I don't know. Um, you know, the ones that would attract guys like Schmetz and the you know the world champion dudes. I don't know. There was there was plenty, but the noise as well yeah. of forty big four strokes at the time. Four strokes weren't really a big deal. We were modifying trail bikes, but it soon came to the point where, um, you know, there was. They were starting to get four strokes and Craig Anderson turned up on the first 400 YZF and, you know, stuff like that. But um, It would have been so sick to oh, watch mate, Craig it Anderson. Was so, it was so sick. But it sort of got out of control in the end and, um, you know, the, the manufacturers taking over and then they they all had semis and they, you know, we, we didn't care. Like, it was about the track. It wasn't about parking semis. And so the track started to change. Well, actually, that happened more later. So we got to the point where we were going, I'm trying to run a business. I'm not making one cent out of the thumpers and don't want yeah. to. It was not about that. It was the clubs were making some money. But we were doing a lot of the work. And we are going, man, look, you know, we got other things to do. And it's great that the series is going good and all that stuff. And I'm sure your so, business was growing at this point. Too. And my business was growing. So we decided, hey, let's talk to Kevin Williams and, We'll put all you know. He was, he was dying in a way, all the way I believe, because it it must be hard for Kevin because he was running like Australian motocross stuff, and the Thumper Nats was the ten shit. times bigger, you know. Yeah. And you know maybe he's talking to somebody from overseas and they go, oh, how's it all going, Australian champs? And they go, he's probably saying, well, actually, there's this other thing called Thumper Nats. It's a bit weird, but it's the it's the go, you know. And so, you know, he probably went wow you know this is this is pretty crazy and things were changing because four strokes were just starting to come out but anyway we handed it over to him for zero dollars or anything it was just a handshake agreement or maybe we had some sort of contract but but the contract was all about staying within the rules and you know no prize money and blah 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 but you know some people i heard blame said oh when he took over it just that lost it and everything but it was not completely that it was it was also a timing with um you know, four strokes weren't a big deal. Like they were, they were production. Yeah, you guys were like a novelty event. At yeah. The start. So yeah. the Australian Motocross Championship started having four strokes in it. You yeah. know, so the novelty had gone a bit, 
and <clears throat> the tracks that we all just you know could not believe how good they were they weren't going there anymore because the semis wouldn't fit you know you, uh, you, if you want to take a semi there you got to have proper flat ground and yeah. access and so it was weird it was it was around the other way you know it, it was a shame you know so it changed and you know i guess a natural death in a way but you, you know there's certainly room for another series you know of, Man, of that I, sort of my, stuff my brain's turning I'm yeah thinking like, Fuck, we could do that <laughs> oh honestly it's like everyone's looked at a golf course and gone why can't we race around there oh, yeah. and that's what we were doing but we'd also figured out that two days you know we we could have easily had twice as many people if we'd had other classes on some on saturday and yeah a bit like the amcross but we sort of knew that at the end of one full day of racing that track was gone and all the grass was gone and piled up on the edges and trying to water that stuff it's tricky and and just turns to ice and it's and just yeah, yeah it's just it's not it's lost its novelty so we just went no nah, it's just that many classes and um let's go for it you know so another thing that just sort of eventually faded out but you know maybe one day we might resurrect something i'm down <laughs> um did you when, when did you start to enjoy business or like did you ever enjoy business because <laughs> from like i'll talk about your like lineage yeah of, of businesses like you do the xrs only and then that slowly morphs into ballards which is one of the what's the stat around the catalog it doesn't your catalog go out to like more people or don't you have like isn't there some crazy yeah. stat around the catalog itself yeah well you know i mean the catalog you know we're up to number 39 and i did 35 of them you know in the early days that i was doing it we some years we had two a year you know but it was a real tool and before you know promoting yeah. it, it, it was a good thing and um yeah you know it was funny that you said when did i start enjoying it so i mean there would have been times for sure i go i'm damn lucky this is good i can you know race and uh have a business around it so but you had a you had a great business like ballard's off-road <laughs> yeah but even before like pre yeah. pre-mx store yeah. great was, business and yeah. then mx store you do the deal with mx store which yeah. i think's maybe one of the best deals that yeah. mx store's ever done yeah and then you slot into now this like hyper modern framework um, yeah. for your business so it's like if you look it at the trajectory well, yeah. of your business career like you've got yeah. jeff ballard the writing career yeah and then jeff ballard the business career yeah there's a great business career there as well and it's funny it's like i don't know whether you even see yourself as a <laughs> businessman or if you even enjoy business because yeah. i'll say like for me personally I only ever did, I've worked myself my entire life like I've only ever, ever had a couple yeah. of jobs and it was when I was a kid yep I couldn't work for anybody but yeah. that wasn't because I loved business yes. that was just yeah, because yeah. I didn't want to work for somebody yeah but I've got the the podcast has made me love like the business side of yes. things I, yeah. it's something now, now I enjoy yeah but that wasn't until like a couple of years yeah you know so uh, where are you at with even yeah. enjoying business because yeah, yeah. well, you're funny. a great businessman well by sheer ass i'd say because um <laughs> i'm not really but but in a way i you know you definitely I, are. I, I guess i am in in as far as when i started i knew nothing about business and i went well how do you do this and obviously you know i'm trying to do my best at getting products but but in the bottom line i just thought well i'm just going to treat the customer the way i would want to be treated so that was that was everything that i wanted you know and that was how i based it 
and that's how it kind of grew through the years um you know a lot of respect for the customer and just trying to do it just trying to help them people used to ring us up all the time wanting to know jetting for their xr or yeah. you know valve cleaners we just give it to them you know what we just we talked to them for ages on it you know we didn't care we you know that one we didn't make any money but whatever yeah. i mean it didn't matter but we we found out sort of slowly they get people go man they won't tell us anything these other guys I go oh okay but anyway that you know we just thought it was you know fine and everything was normal but as far as the business i wasn't I wasn't. I didn't think I was a businessman, you know, at all. Um, and um, but at the same time, I think I had some pretty good ideas, and I, I had a good gut feeling on what was the right thing to do, you know. Mm. But after twenty-five years, I was uh, a bit burnt out, and um, you know, I had a heart heart with my son Josh, um, and you know, he'd been racing pro, sort of enduro, and going well but he was he was not toby price you know and and in australia if you're not in the top three he was you know at his on his best day he could maybe get in the top three or five or something but but he was he was not the guy who was going to be a guy making a, a living from it you know but we supported him a bit and um and it was good and he worked in the business but you know i got to the point where i was getting tired of it i go oh josh you know what are you gonna do and um you know, I think it's, you know, and maybe not right now, but in the, you know, near future, you need to start thinking about it and maybe you can t take over and he just goes, what? And he goes, no, not in a pink fit, not in a million years, never, ever. Really? And I go, what are you going to do? He goes, I just want to join the military. And I'm like, what the hell? Where did that come from? So you I never knew that? Never knew. And, wow. And then he goes, he says stuff like, yeah, that's all I've ever wanted to do. I go, what? And then talk to my wife. And she goes, what? And I go, <laughs> yeah, that's what he said. So then I was in like, right, I'm over it. I've done 25 so years. So you'd kind of checked out because you thought that Josh would take it over. Like it was just like Yeah, well, not, no, I hadn't thought about that until I started getting burnt out a bit, yeah, you know. Okay. And, uh, but it probably helped your decision to be over it. Like yeah. thinking that your son would want to take it yeah. over. And of course, through the years, you know, we ran 10 years of uh, race team for Honda and then 14 years with Yamaha and... But I was enjoying that. I was enjoying the guys, and we had a property that was amazing for training guys up in 1,150 meters, so fairly high, which was it's not altitude training, but it's um it's so much cooler to train. A lot of these riders do the majority of their training in the summer, you know, off season, and um, so it's a good place. You can do a lot of riding there. It's really good. Um, so. Anyway, I, I was enjoying that more and I was at the point where I was going, oh, I don't want to go to work. And so I'd go to work, you know, four days a week and then three and then two and then one. I was, I was over it. Like, yeah. I was just going, now. Nah, I don't want to do it anymore. And, you know, so I'm trying to sell it. And um, I had Brad Beddoe's manager and he was, he was awesome, absolutely fantastic and, you know, greatest guy I ever had employed, really. He was awesome. So, um, you know he was doing a good job but it was also we weren't accounting for everything and and not and we weren't as efficient maybe as um should have been you know with uh, you know you can lose a lot of money by sea freighting over air freighting and different yeah, things like yeah. that so you know brad was thrown in the deep end and he was doing his best and you know are you coming into work i nah you know i'm just staying up here in the, where the wombats and kangaroos are and, <laughs> and um anyway i i sort of got to that point and i was so i going okay i'm trying to sell it but the time the business it was an awesome business it really was um 
and but it was sort of going down a bit you know but down a bit only because it wasn't worked a hundred percent you know yeah yeah but you know i put it out there to different people trying to sell it's pretty uh it's pretty that would have been a time. big business yeah to, it was oh, you know not really not compared to amex but yeah okay but you know it was my life it was it was um there was a lot of heart in it and and you know time to n- not do this you know and uh so anyway i did the usual thing and tried to put it out there without making it collapse and everybody bailing out because you know i was i was getting out and it really wasn't working too well and a lot of people who were talking to me were doing the typical you know trying to cheapen it through oh it's going down and you know just just stuff that's um you know hard to take and and, Mm. you know it's emotional sort of thing selling a business you've had for 25 years and you i knew it was a great business and then i talked to jake um i was out of touch man i wasn't hardly going to work so somebody oh mark looks at you you know oh yeah Yeah, yeah, so mark looks at was he's a good mate and he just said hey you know maybe you should talk to jake at mx store i go what's mx store you know and uh he goes oh they're really good online and that was our weakness our strength was our catalog Catalog, and uh okay yeah maybe you know and uh so i talked to jake and he was just so nice and so different than everyone else and i was just going man this guy's great love it and um anyway i think i talked to him maybe two days in a row and i was going i think this has got something happening you know anyway uh i think jake rang me the next day and he goes nah it's all off it's sorry mate it's like you're in new south wales we got so many plans and things to do and um yeah you know to be fair we don't want to muck you around and drag you along and then but he never ever tried cheapening it you know he he just respected it and said your catalog's awesome and blah 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 anyway and that was it i was like floored you know and so i was like damn and i was living at the farm or sleeping at the farm that night and i slept on it and i go now i'm not gonna let this guy go you know and so so I rang him back the next day and I said, instead of you buying my business, what say I put everything I've got into, you know, um, goodwill and stocks and different things and, you know, catalogs or whatever and put it into buying into your business? And it's like, oh, it's, that's interesting. And and that sort of reignited it. And, um, yeah, it's where it went from. from wow. there. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. So... You know, and I think Jake uh, thought, well, this is kind of cool because he'll he'll be a bit more, you know, instead of just going, wiping your hands, yeah, Yeah. and just see you later. And, and, you know, it's pretty funny how it worked. And, and, yeah, that was... So I came and lived in my motorhome up here for nine months. Yeah, yeah. I remember. And it was, man, it was tough. It was really hard because, you know, they never put pressure on me, but I put all the pressure on myself and... And it wasn't as technical, you know, we were selling cams and carbs and, you know, piston kits. I mean, they sell piston kits now, they sell a lot of stuff, but they weren't geared for the more technical side, so... Yeah, they were mainly, like, gear and stuff like that. It was mainly gear, yeah, Yeah. and, um, you know, so I had a knowledge of manufacturing and importing and doing all this, and Jake could see that, I guess, and... And the catalogue he loved, he was just out there and honest. And I went, I want this next catalogue to be so good, you know. Um, so he never said, the only thing I think he said was, it'd be cool if we could have a catalogue. That was probably all he said. So 
that was my mission you know i just took on i had to pull a lot of stuff out of the catalog all of the you know the carbs and cams and different things you know um and i went yeah no no yeah yeah anyway and i went okay i I gotta feed this catalog and i gotta i gotta find and create so many more parts and really get cracking you know and you know Corey came up with me from MX. He was the only, uh, sorry, from Ballards, and it was the only guy who came up, and he sort of got into the business side with Jake, and um, and yeah, pretty much, you know, it became uh, me in the catalogue. Let's say, um, you know, Janet ring up, I'd be in a bad mood. She go, "What's going on? You know, can I help?" I go, "No, nah, there's nothing you can do." And, you know, I get up at four o'clock in the morning and because all my life was, you know, dealing with overseas people. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So many different things. It was really hard. And, um, but anyway, I get up about four. I go to bed pretty early, but I get up about four. I'd answer emails and things. Um, then I'd push bike into Burley, you know, usually I'd go to the yeah. surf club, yeah. have a coffee, have an hour or so just to get some sun and some sanity. And then go back in and just keep working on stuff and you know it didn't matter if it was a holiday or whatever i pretty much do it every day and um just kept working at it you know and anyway um i just couldn't wait to get the first catalog out and in my brain at the time it was the first catalog then they're then they're on their own you know yeah yeah but in that nine months of living up here and um and exploring mainly on my pushy the around the area i sort of fell in love with the area a lot you know um i've got a great place down the mountains too but i went man this is really nice i could easily spend a lot of time here too you know so that's where things changed and i bought a unit and um and just decided yeah i'm gonna mix it between the two you know and, and in a general sense it's half each let's say but um covid's changed a bit of stuff and yeah you know, these last years have been all over the place but um a bit more down there just in the, you know i live in riding heaven down there in hampton and um here it's different you know i when i'm up here i do a bit more moto sort of stuff and yeah. you know go to qmp and stuff like that but which is good for me just a bit of did you get stuff. videos of trance the other day did i get videos of what from trance no lucky had the bulldozer there oh okay so sick oh okay i think next time i ride i'm gonna be going there okay yeah speaking of uh locals (laughs) yeah yeah well so i don't i to be honest i don't know you know i'm i'm from south so you know i don't know a lot of the areas and the tracks and and even the places you know they go to warmbro i go oh you've heard of that where's that you know and i went there to the uh Went there to Transmoto on the weekend, you know, or yeah, near there, near there the you know, Kubi yeah. Dam. So, you know, I mean, I, I know of it, but I just, brain doesn't work as good. And I was like, yeah, I'll find it. You know, it's got to be on GPS. <laughs> but yeah, so anyway, that's how the, that's how the merge happened. And, and, you know, I just sort of started to like the area and, um, and it's, and it's funny, but anyway, going back to what parts do I like, it was a pretty funny conversation it was uh, with Jake and Hilly and their, and they're sort of drilling me on, you know, what do you reckon? I go, mate, you have to do this. And, you know, we need to start making you know, our own stuff and brand and blah, blah. Anyway, and, and, and I'm just, at that stage, I just want out. You know, I just want, yeah. I want to merge, but I want to get this catalogue and just get out. And they yeah. go, they go, well, what part of the business do you like? And I, and I said, I hate every bloody part of it, you know. <laughs> and they laughed and... 
I'm done, and, boys. I'm done. I'm done. And then I then I thought about it and I said, no, you know what? I like I like you know the catalog to some extent, um, and I like new products and making new products. So, and then you know Jake just goes, oh, yeah, okay, and. So, you know, there was never any pressure from him and um, obviously I'm just there, you know, um, working stuff for new and it's, there's no pressure. I just you know, do things as it sort of comes about. There's always things in the background, but, but really I get to do the fun stuff. They, they do all the hard work and, you know, people might look and go, oh, wow, that's a machine and it certainly is, but crazy amount of work those guys work hard you know they're just having a go they're putting all back into the business they're, they're well they're putting a lot into the industry too oh totally into the industry they're every club they're behind they're just they've supported they're this podcast for can't even remember oh the first, wow can't even remember the first time yeah see i don't even know a lot of the stuff people ask me questions i go i don't know yeah and no, they go is it going well i go i guess so there's more and more people working there but you know yeah. and like manjima they yeah. supported us to go to Manjima. Yep. And then in the end, um, the boys actually even flew over with us and were with us the whole time. Yep. So like, yeah. Jeff, you mean? Monroe yeah, yeah, and those yeah, guys? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So they do, yeah. you know, they put a lot back yeah. into the business, but they put a lot back into the sport as well. Oh, man. And, you yeah. know, sponsoring like the Lawrence boys and the Beatons yep. and Wilson yep. and Webster. all and And they don't need to right now. They don't it's need to crazy. sponsor anybody. They, no, they, you know honestly, I mean? they're just machines and they're passionate and, um, yeah, they're really into it and uh, it's impressive. I, you know, I, Has it given you a bit of a new love for it, like kind of new energy being yeah, around Yeah, you know, I, don't, I didn't have the energy and I don't really have anything like the energy that they do for the overall stuff. You know, I try and leave, you know, Jake and the bosses alone as much as I can. I, I'm... You know, I just think, man, they just got so much on their plate. I just leave them alone and and uh, play with the stuff I I, I do. And um, but yeah, it's like it's an energy. You know, you run out of energy like I ran out in twenty five years, and then I went, I'm done. But um, it's rekindled because now I get to do the fun stuff. As I mm. said, you know, so like, very lucky, really. Shout out to the Ballard's foot pegs. <laughs> greatest aftermarket part that <laughs> yeah. I've uh, if you if you want to put one thing on you actually fuck I need to get my sets before this goes out because <laughs> they seriously sell out man yeah but those those foot pegs yeah I reckon that's the single best thing that yeah. you can put on your on oh your that's that's interesting you say that it's cool yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. we we sent that clip yeah. yeah it's funny because Jats was sitting yeah. right there yesterday yeah and yeah. we're doing that one two five build yeah for that him was to do funny the I saw that yeah and, uh, and I was like is there anything else you want because like it i asked him what tires he because i don't give a fuck what he runs like yeah. Yeah, just if you're gonna race it let's yeah. just put the parts on it that yeah. you want and yeah. then the, yeah, you know yeah. i don't need any money out of it like yeah, we don't yeah. need the sponsors for it and he said i want pirelli tires and i want those foot pegs <laughs> and i was like i want those foot pegs yeah. so yes yeah, that's 100% yeah. well as you know we've had a lot of trouble keeping them in stock but fuck, so i think we're getting on top of it a bit more now and uh I think Corey's doing a good job there or a better job than we were doing. So hopefully they're in stock again or they are soon. And, no, they, yeah. they are. I've checked, but I'm going to get some <laughs> before we put this up. Yeah, yeah. That's cool. But yeah, no, it's uh, it's definitely um, like an amazing partnership from my end because it yeah. seems like it's kept you going yeah. a little bit more. And I, think, I honestly think that you're one of the best ambassadors for the sport going right now. And a lot of your generation still is like you 
Gawley, yeah. Leesky, Glenn yeah. Bell, like Craig yeah. Dack. Yeah. Like there's a lot of your generation that yeah. is really still um, behind the industry. But I mean, for for mine on like a personal level, I go ride with you and you give me hope. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? You give me hope uh, of of what a life should look like. Because yeah. there's so many people that they will never commit to fully living a life on their own terms in the yeah. way that you have. And, you know, fuck motorcycles, riding motorcycles on the weekend. Like, there's sometimes I'm so busy doing this shit yeah. and with all the yeah, life yeah. stuff that I've got going on. And then I go to the fucking QMB on Sunday and then my bike's dirty, my gear's dirty, I yeah. hurt my shoulder, I'm fucking not eating <laughs> good food because I've gotten home too late. Yeah. Too late. I can't, uh, but, but you there's had a great something time. about it you know <laughs> there's something about it there and, is yeah. and there's a point in everyone's life in like fucking quote unquote normal society where it's like yeah. righto mate put your toys down yeah it's time to grow up it's time to get serious it's time yeah. all that cliche yeah. bullshit <laughs> and you're the dude at 62 yeah, that's yeah. just still yeah. doing the damn thing and having more fun than everybody and yeah. riding more laps than everybody yeah so you're the fucking hope <laughs> <laughs> well you know um, I feel lucky to do it, you know, like it, obviously I love it, right? I, that makes a big difference. But if my body started falling apart, it would get harder. Mm. And obviously it's it gets harder, but it's hanging in there, you know. Um, you know, and, and like uh, Gawley does his knee braces and all that. And, and it's, it's one thing I should mention because before Gawley ever did them or anything like that, you know, I was racing America the first year, 84, oh, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. I actually tore my cruciate ligament. The year yeah. I won the championship, I was going well in a race. I, so that was one of my throwouts. I, had to, I, I hurt my knee, right? So it was dusty and I hit a bank, went up and put my leg out and I couldn't see this mound of dirt and I hit it and hyperextended um, and did my cruciate ligament, right? Back in 1984, if you said the name cruciate ligament, people go, what? What's that, you know? we didn't know anything about our knees or any of these you know ligaments and things so i never went to hospital i never did anything i never had any medical anyway because couldn't afford it in america so i just went back to the pits and jan had the shits because i pulled out you know no money this week sort of yeah, thing yeah. and um and i just went on oh, my knee my knee you know anyway um never went to a doctor never did anything just thought hurt my knee right it'll get better and um so i was just hanging around I was coming about second or third in the championship then, so that helped, you know. But anyway, C that was the first year CTI knee braces were made. It was 84. And I'd heard, I'd say, this is, these are these dudes in San, San Diego or somewhere down California, anyway, making these knee braces. And they make them to fit your leg and all this sort of stuff. And I'd hurt my knee, so I went, I want to get a set of these. And so they were expensive, whatever they were. And... Um, and so Jen and I are having an argument because I wanted two. I wanted one for my good knee, you know. Yeah. And she's going, you don't need one for that knee. And I'm going, I need one. I've got to get a pair, you know. Anyway, I approached them and then they went, oh, yeah, you're this bloke. And look, we'll, we'll give them to you for half price. And um, so I got two for the price of one. So I got two knee braces. So um, anyway, I ended up winning the championship and they, they've supported me ever since. And it's probably one of the things that's helped me a lot, mm. you know, because I've done you know forever i've been racing and everything and then um you know i went in the 
Baja once down in, in uh, 91, I think it was, and um, a hotel burnt down. I lost everything, all my riding gear and all that stuff. And so I just came back via the States and went and saw them again. They made me another set, and they've been supporting me ever since. But every now and then I, I think, man, I think those things have made a huge difference, mm. you know. Like, my knees aren't great by any means, but I never have had my cruciate ligament fixed, which is quite out there. And, and it doesn't so, India? Not, not really. So I didn't even know I hurt it, right? I mean, I knew I hurt my knee. But, but you wouldn't have even known what it was. I didn't know, know what it was, yeah. and I kept racing in America for the three years. And then, so this is um, 92. So, okay, I heard it in... So eight years later, I'm back in Australia, and... I'm running XRs only and I'm in a race and I'm putting pressure on the side of the tank to help turn the bike and I get some, you know, meniscus or something jammed in the joint, you know, mm. and it's like, ah, you know, it's killing me. So I go, damn, I've got to go and get this knee looked at. So I went to this surgeon and he uh, did an arthroscope, you know, booked me in and all that for a day surgery and come back with all the pictures and everything. And anyway, he says, um, you've torn your cruciate ligament i go i didn't even put my leg on the ground he goes no you've done it like years ago and he described it how it was supposed to be up here and it pulled off the bone and it wiggled really? like like lowly worm he was showing me and then he said and it's stuck on the side and it's joined it's growing back on the side and so i said oh so it's it's support it's it's joined again he goes yeah but it's doing nothing it's got to be cut and pulled way up the top and pulled tension you know and this is 90 this is 92 so this is the first year the six day has been in the southern hemisphere and it's the oldest running motorsport race in the world you know i'm mr enduro in australia at the time i'm not going to miss the 92 six day you know which was in um where was it Cessnock, yeah so i just said well okay that's cool but later you know yeah and he cleaned it up and it felt pretty good anyway um so you know it didn't worry me all that much you know and uh, so over the years i stuffed it again and then you know so one more time went in there and he goes oh man you you know it's not good like you, you're running out of meniscus you better get it fixed yeah yeah sure soon you know and but every time he went in there and cleaned it out it felt like a million i couldn't even hardly tell which was my bad knee it was like wow that's awesome these arthroscopes and clean out so then i went to another six day and now it's the czech republic not czechoslovakia and um and i stabbed the ground lost the front or did something you know and it was normal hurting me pain blah blah but this time i'd really done a good job and i had you know kind of broken into the femur and it took a chunk out of it just from the compression mm. anyway the dude had all these photos and he said oh man he said he described it as the horses bolted and um he said all i've done is round it off a bit and he suggests i just um swim and ride bicycles or something to help anyway i was freaking out oh, and he also said the most you'll ever get out of your knee is 10 years and then you have to get an artificial knee and that freaked me out so i knew a guy in the mountains who was a bit of a guru and I asked him and he said oh yeah that guy's a good surgeon but he's a surgeon and they don't believe in a lot of other stuff but glucosamine is something you maybe should get onto and i rang Gawley and he goes yeah glucosamine and so i've been on it ever since and man talk about for me i don't know about other people but for me it transformed things and everything just started feeling better and that was um 
so that was about 16 or 17 years ago the last time and the guy told me the most i would ever go is 10 years and a new knee and it's like it's fine everything's spot on <laughs> i have not missed a day of taking glucose oh good yeah i told we, you since get we, into it yeah, yeah since we spoke <laughs> i um i've i hurt my shoulder at qmp like when yes when we when rode, it's, built. And yep. it's not it's not bad it's just one i just wouldn't be smart to ride on it you know if, no. I, if I had to do a six day or something i'd probably <laughs> yeah, go, yeah. go and do it but yeah. um but oh the rest of my body because like my my problem like i was telling you with jiu-jitsu is like my fingers hurt yeah like, right so it's funny that all my life riding i just got arm pump real bad i had shit, yep. shit technique which was also a cause of it but um <laughs> but as soon as i started jiu-jitsu yeah arm pump uh, gone wow just completely gone mm-hmm. because in the in the gi you, you know you're grabbing like the big thick material and yep. all you're doing is grips the entire time yeah. and what people are trying to do mm is you've got one hand gripping on a collar or a sleeve and then they're getting their two hands and they're breaking that grip. Yeah. So like so you're doing holding it. Oh, yeah. you're doing these crazy <clears throat> like guys do pull-ups on towels and like holding towels and stuff to yep. like strengthen their grip for for jiu-jitsu. Yeah. And but man, my fingers and hands just get so fucking sore <laughs> from training and uh and like feet from people like trying to like foot lock in, yeah. ankle lock in, stuff like yep, that. Yep. So like I get up in the mornings after training and like my body is so sore. And uh, it's funny, mm. one of my coaches, he bought me the glucosamine. Yeah. Well, and I didn't, I'd <clears> just take it, it sporadically. Yeah. yeah. I'd take it sporadically. But yeah, since you told me, I literally haven't yeah. missed a day. And I, yeah. I do feel quite a lot better. Well, it, it, you'll, you know, to me, you have to take it for a month, you know. Yeah. And I can't remember, but I just went, well, this is my only chance. That says take it every day. I'd just do it every day, and I'd still do it every day. You know, every now and then there's something happens, maybe, but but basically every day. And uh, you know, it just gets to me for me anyway. You know, I'm sure there's people who have said I've tried it properly. Yeah, it doesn't work. Maybe you yeah. know, but man, for me it's just like second chance. You know, that's, that's crazy. Yeah. Man. Just a supplement. I was yeah. trying to explain this to my dad because my dad's like the quintessential. <clears throat> fucking blue collar dude that's just like yeah ah, fucking that won't work ah, this yeah. won't work this Mechanical. won't work yeah yeah and like you know just one supplement one yeah. bit of powder every day and you can and yep. and you would know like you're a guy that is your life has been spent behind bars yeah. riding yeah you know, yeah you've, you've probably ridden a motorcycle yeah. as much as anybody yeah so like you would you would have the metrics to know yeah yeah well um yeah, I've done a lot of riding and, you know, to me it's been proof, you know, I had smashed my elbow. I mean, I've never broken an arm or a leg or That's a collarbone, crazy you know, to me. so yeah, people think, man, you've raced for 50 years and you must have broken some things. I go, yeah, f- fingers, you know, and um broke a, in America I broke some bones in my foot, you know. Um I I have I I got an elbow injury, so I have had that, but basically, you know, wear and tear like really if i was a footballer i'd be a basket case wouldn't yeah. i <laughs> and and so in your mind do you have any like idea of when you slow down from all the riding and not really you know um do you have like a number in mind no or you don't you just no, it's no. not even in your on your radar no not really no that's probably the move yeah you know like obviously it just depends but the, you know the way i'm feeling now is like let's go riding now like that's how i feel so 
but I mightn't feel like that next year. I might have something going on, but you know, while you feel good, you know, there's nothing much that's as good as riding bikes. So love doing it, and um, it's hard to stop, as I said. So yeah, it's e- it's easy to keep going at the moment, and you know, I definitely don't feel handicapped by age in any real way. So um, you still smoke me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's fun. I just love riding. Yeah. So um, these new forks that you're on. So I'm a big fork guy. Oh, yeah, I'm wow. a big, big fork guy. Yep. So you've gone from the uh, TTR 250 forks yep. as the uh, staple. I've ridden your 350. Yeah, almost fucking cartwheeled uh, over yeah. a berm because you used three fingers for your front brake. Oh, yeah, yeah, I that's a problem. Yeah. I was not accustomed to that. You even gave me warning and I was yeah. like, and I felt it and I was like, oh, yeah. okay, that's different. And yep. then I went out of the dragon almost yeah. endoed. So I've ridden, your, yeah. I've ridden your 350 with TTR forks. And but even I've... Toby liked that, right? He rode it and he went, wow, let's get some traction on the front wheel. And he was, yeah, anyway, keep going, sorry. So then <laughs> the, the next contraption I rode was your 350 with these these new forks. Yeah. What, what are these yeah. bad boys? Okay, there's a guy in Canberra called uh, Suspension, what's he call himself? Suspension Smith. Yeah. Yeah, I've got no connection at all, except I'm a selfish dude and came across somehow this they wanted me to test this front end he didn't say much about it has he got photos of it online anywhere you reckon or is it like all oh i don't know yeah if you go to suspension smith um because this was wild so yeah if you go to his site and uh yeah go to that go to that go to that yeah kdm there suspension which one that one yeah i think yeah that's uh yeah, that's one. So that's oh, a there's another. Model. There's another fork down there too. That one. Yeah. Slow yeah. Well, that's my bike. That's the earlier triple clamp. Yeah. Right. It's a little bit different than what you're looking at now. Yeah. Um. But yeah, it's um, it's a linkage fork. Um. So, it's got oh, um, it's girder, got a lot of fork. it's kind of a girder fork, yeah. and the girder doesn't mean a lot to a lot of people. But it's um, what its difference is is it's, it's still got the same uh, wheelbase as a normal bike. So people think, oh, it's it's pushed out, but it's it's a steeper fork angle, which gives it more trail. So it makes it steered better. Really um, good. And it gives it, uh, yeah, well, you've ridden it. Really Yeah, good. and it makes it uh, react to bumps better because the, the suspension wants to go together better. The more you make a bike a chopper, the more it wants to push the bike back towards you instead of rolling over stuff. So um, he's, he's, you know, he's up to, he's, he's done different versions. Um and um you know it's got a lot of merit i mean right now we've um i feel like i've gone backwards a little bit i'm trying a different um thing slightly and i'm having i was having a bit of um setup um problem but but since, I since find, we rode yeah yeah i changed it i tried did you go to make the harder it spring no i thought i bought it i wished i did but uh, i um i couldn't find it i think i've left it back in the mountains so yeah. that was disappointing so after we rode the next thursday i went oh, i'm gonna ride some motocross so i'm gonna try and do a few things and i pretty much stuffed it up what'd you, know? you do oh i just figured oh more compression you know for moto and um and um so yeah it's got it's got high and low speed on the shock so you got different things to work with it's it's a bit out there that way um so you yeah, got high and low com- uh, speed on the compression and rebound on the shock yeah 
and then you've got it's an air fork we're using so you've got air pressure on the top but he's made he's made it so there's another uh, shader valve underneath yeah i don't understand a lot of the reasons and everything but he he shortens the fork by 30 mil and um and the the triple clamp now moves up 60 mil so there's actually 30 mil more travel but people see it but it looks it looks like like it's really low low, yeah. yeah And I, so people go, oh, it looks soft in the front because they're only looking at the distance from the tire to the mud guard. Yeah. They don't realize the triple clamp moves 60 mil. So yeah. that's a bit frustrating. I get to people saying, oh, it looks too soft in the front. But um, so I actually stuffed it up and made it too hard. I finally figured out. I did the um, eight hour at, um, you know, the transmoto. Yeah. And um, oh, I had a pretty bad setup and I went into there. It gets pretty rough, you know, and uh, I was struggling. Like I was just going, yeah, oh, man, really? this is not right. And um, still steered well, but, you know, it just wasn't working right. And so I battled with with the setup and then I eventually went back to basics and the last two laps, so the roughest two laps, and it was back to good again. It was great. Yeah. So, yeah, I just, you know, there's more to learn for me because it's not conventional. You look at things and you think, oh, that and yeah. So once it's set up and I stop playing with it and trying to do some stupid things, then I think it's going to be a better setup. <laughs> but, you know, Laurie's a smart guy. Um, and, um, yeah, you know, he's made versions uh, like that that green Kawasaki there. That's his, um, I think. Wow, that uh, Oh, crazy. maybe it's not, or is it? It's so out there, but... He's. I think that's his. I'm not sure about See, that. that. It looks like his. That's probably too out there for a. Convention. I know. You know what I mean. I like know. For a, in terms of a uh, a commercial model. I know. That's the shame about yeah. it because um, everybody just like I haven't ridden that bike and that bike didn't work as well as there was. A, there's another one that has the frame modified and yeah. has it's a KTM 350. Yeah. And that's the first one I rode, and also Ben Grabham rode. You know. And it was it was a funny exa- um, test session because um, I rode I rode this bike. The guy said, "Would you you know could you test it?" And I go, "Yeah, cool. Just bring it up." I didn't know much about it. And when it got there, I went, "Whoa, look at this thing! It's out <laughs> there." So you know, I've done plenty of testing before with different people and brands and everything. Oh, that's the Yamaha. Yeah, we're trying yeah, so that, that at the moment. But that, that looks like you could sell me that bike. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, like yeah. You could sell me that as like a commercial. Yeah. Like I would put that on my 350, yeah. go to the track or do a motocross race yeah. or whatever. Yeah, yeah. That. Well, what what's the shame about what you're saying is it's just how people think. It's a perception, you know? yeah. It's a perception and yeah. it's like, you know... Yeah, it's it's weird, and but you know, like if Roxon started winning on a bike that looked like that Kawasaki, everybody go, oh, you got to have this new suspension, you know. Yeah, it's just the way it works. But anyway, I haven't ridden the Kawasaki, but the second evolution of that modified frame and everything is unbelievable. Really, it's better than what I'm doing now. But so it's mod- they modify the frame for that. Yes, and so Laurie started figuring out. Um, well, to give you an idea how it happened, so my my KDM that I have at the moment is, oh, I'll jump back a bit more. So then he bought it up and I rode it and I just went, oh my God, I just couldn't believe it. And I was so familiar with my track at back in yeah, the mountains, you know, and I yeah. just, we know it, we flog around it all the time yeah. and, and it's got some nasty shit. People come there and go, man, this is so gnarly. And we go, no, nah, it's awesome. We love it. There's ruts everywhere and 
big bumps that push you out of the corners, you know, breaking bumps that if you're breaking or you're just going to spring out of the whole corner, you know, that sort of stuff. Anyway, I jumped on this bike and I just went, oh my God, I can't believe how good this. it was a bit soft, that one. It was made more, a bit more for trail, you know. Anyway, but it was unbelievable. It was really unbelievable. And uh, so I was trying to get my head around it, you know. And uh, anyway, I I think that Ben Graben's probably one of, if not the best tester that I've ever known. Yeah, you know? really? He's, he's, he's really good. Yeah, he's been to Japan with us and... And he's also done stuff over his career where, you know, he's changed steering head angles on gas gas and went to the four-day and won it outright on a 125, you know. And he's lengthened swing arms like big time on bikes and we've done it later and gone, yeah, that is the best thing. I just think he's got some merit, you know. Yeah, so... um, That's super cool. Anyway, so I was... I didn't know what to say to this guy. And I was pretty much so impressed, but I was thinking, am I imagining it? It's yeah. just good, you know? Yeah. Anyway, and I said, you know what would be good is if you got Ben Grabham to ride this bike and get his opinion on it too. But I said, I think it's amazing. It's funny you say that because he's actually riding it this weekend. And I go, oh, great. Anyway, uh, and they said, what's the downsides and all that? And I said, well, there's not a lot. And I go, I know it's heavier because there's more going on at the front. But it's like when you change the offset of a triple clamp, you you know, one way is going to make the bike feel heavier and the other is not. So um, so I said, I think there's something playing in its favour because I know there's a few kilos, there's probably three kilos more with the conventional, not the conventional fork, but with the non-air fork, you know. Anyway, I said, I can feel a bit more weight, so that's a downside, but there's so many plus, you know. But anyway, that's a downside. And he goes, well, we're thinking of putting an air fork on it and um you know we can save one and a half kilos with an air fork yeah i went oh okay and he goes i've got an air fork and i'm actually going to try and you know he has to shorten and do a few things to it and he goes and ben's going to try him this weekend so i went oh wow that's exciting and that's cool and i i want a part of this you know i just want a bike like this i'm thinking i'm interested you know so i said to laurie let me know how it goes you know anyway and he just came back He's not a sensationalist or anything, and he just said, "Yeah, Ben really liked it, you know." But he, he, and he liked the air fork better than the, the the fork that was in it, you know, con- more conventional, not conventional, but upside down. But you know, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. And um, like a I went, oh yeah, oh that's interesting, and um, so yeah, from there, um, I just yeah, you know, still sleeping at night going i think i need one of these i need it you know so then i'm thinking air fork so i went down to sato's in penrith you know when i was in the mountains and said do you do you guys make a uh an exc with an air fork and he goes nah i go okay i'm thinking oh maybe i've got to get an sfx or something he goes oh sorry no actually yeah we do there's a new one coming out but you've got to order it and it's the wes s model the west model and it's a celebration of hard enduro or something. And it's going to come out with an air fork. I said, beauty, put me down. I want to buy one. And and so at that time, I'm thinking, I want to do this. And I'm going to get a, I'm going to buy a Kato 350. Because that's what I'd ridden before, but an earlier model, you know. And I go, I want the air fork. So, so then I went through a period of trying to um, find a frame. And I was asking guys, is the 17SFX frame or whatever going to be any good? You know, is it the same as the EXC? And they were going, no, 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 you know. And it was all too hard because I was thinking, Laurie's going to hacksaw the whole front off this bike, you know. Yeah, yeah. And it's brand new. Like, it's the latest model. 
and uh, and I think I wanted to just try it on another frame, you know. Anyway, in the end, I couldn't find one, so I go, you know what? I don't care. I'm just going to do it. And so I rang up Laurie. So I've got the bike, and I'm bringing it down. I want you to do your magic, you know. And he said, well, hang off because um, I bought one of those. I told him I was going to buy it. I said I'd ordered it, you know. And he went and got one. And uh, he said, look, this is what I want to do. He goes, I want to actually make it so you can bolt it on yeah. to the steering head so you don't have to, you know, scare the guy with when you bring it in, he's holding the hacksaw or something. And um, I went, oh, okay. Yeah, it's um, a pretty big barrier to entry if you've got to hack your frame. Yeah, huh? but I was prepared to do it, you know, because that's yeah. how much I thought this thing works good. And um, anyway, so he said, let's just... Um, leave it like leave it you just keep your bike standard and you ride it and get used to it and he goes i'm going to do this next evolution to to this thing you know yeah. and it's the best way to test because that's what you do when you test for yamaha or anything they don't want to know anything unless you've compared it yeah you can get jump on a bike and go that's awesome and they go against what yeah, yeah you know like unless you've ridden the old model how do you know what you're talking about so so anyway so i kept my bike standard and uh, he bought up his his bike and uh, same model everything and 350 everything same and uh, so I did some laps on my bike I'm familiar with the track anyway and he goes what do you think of your bike I said oh, I like it it's a good bike and uh, you know I wasn't a real fan of air forks before but the new generation seems good I like it you know um, so he goes yeah cool so then i jumped on his bike and i did some laps and i just went oh my god i came in and just went man it's so much better so that was it so that was the uh the earlier um silver triple clamp setup and you know now he's changed a few little things and it's good um anodized black now it's just slightly different anyway uh yeah that's where i'm at you know but in some ways it's compromised you know that the weirdest looking one is the best one but yeah really um yeah it's a different ratio or something it's not the green one's not a good example maybe that was the very first one but what, what go to that one there range or like the top one no you got to be looking for a um just if you go to his site and you go to um yeah just he had the, the website was there suspension smith no no yeah yeah there. yeah and then just yeah images and you'll find it uh, weird wait, looking is uh, that it or there's a dot com dot au go back no he's in Fishwick, so that oh be it. okay that must yep. be it sorry um but it's just under well you might have just updated and got all fancy but oh there it is yeah but that's not the one to look at there's i can't believe it. i've been there before and it's um yeah just look through is there more images or whatever anyway guy bernie is the guy who owns no, the bike now but it's um so Kato's anyway it looks similar I suppose but it's it's a bit more refined than that one maybe it doesn't stick out as far but it was it was it was unbelievable you that know? was the best one eh yeah that was the best one but it's um see there's the, the bottom left there that's the two bikes so that's uh, my bike standard and that's his one yeah right and it so, doesn't look that much different there no once you once you use the existing steering head you know yeah it's uh it's more back to basics and uh but yeah it was it's it's you know, in some ways, it's not been fun because, um, you know, when I rode it, I just went, yeah, I want that, you know. Yeah. And then, um, you know, some people might think I've got some sort of, in, you know, interest outside of just riding it, but it's really just I want to I want a bike better than anyone else. So that's yeah. all it is. But, you know, I've spent so many years, you know, 
changing developing trying to improve and, and a bit over it and it's like when i when i left yamaha in uh, 2012 it was like this is awesome i'm free you know and yeah. so i went out i went out and bought a honda and a kdm or in a hasselberg or something i just ride all these bikes and i go i can ride whatever i want and uh it's been good you know so i've tried to continue to do that i don't try and get any connection to any any brand you know i just want to ride a bike and say what i think about it and so it's it's good that way i've finally got some freedom you know because it's uh i can do it you know i'm i'm now free as such you know so i just uh just ride what i want to ride and and i must admit i've got some great bikes and i've got a beta uh the x trainer i think they call it and that's a great bike for hard enduro and so light and it's you know i'm trying to change things a little bit on that but i'm not totally into changing stuff for the hell of it you know i don't really put much stuff on my bikes but and i've had 350 kdms which are great all-rounder stuff you know certainly good but the the 21 yamaha 450 is like i want to say it's my favorite it's my i'm fastest on that bike there's no doubt about it it's the quickest bike but it wears me out a bit quicker you know so for more cross-country events or something i'm probably going to overall go a bit quicker on the on the kato maybe you know so now i'm playing around with suspension and doing stuff but you know uh hopefully soon we'll get something set and uh laurie's getting some sort of telemetry i think you call it you know yeah, yeah. because it's hard for me you know we've been really close and i drifted away um and i talked to him about it and said man it was I, I wrecked it you know i don't know and it's really hard to know where you are you've got so many more yeah, variables so many options. And, and i and i was actually pretty close and you know you know one of the things you learn over the years is only one change one thing at a time you know it's um but in the last few situations it's been not easy to do that running out of time and i was sharing a bike um with zai i don't know if you know zai is a surfer from noosa yeah yeah Yeah, and he's a good surfer and he's sponsored by dais and uh and you know peter rang up and said can you loan this guy a bike for the event and i go well i'm thinking of going but i'm not riding and then yeah i can do that and then uh, the guys from work said oh someone's pulled out of their team we had a mixed team um you know with um amy and uh, nigel and you know there was a form man uh, yeah one girl and three guys and then everyone except nigel was still there but anyway it looked grim they said oh we need you you know i said oh okay so then i ended up doing um laps you know and it was it was good but i was trying to feed the bike as much as i could to zai and um you know he's a great guy and polite and everything and he was happy to get the bike and i was thinking he's gonna love this thing you know but i'd stuffed it like the day before well friday i'd been playing and i'd got lost you know anyway and i hadn't ridden it again i'd sort of changed a few things back but i had done such a bad job you know anyway he went out and rode it and came in and i was expecting him to go wow and he went oh it feels a bit weird or something and uh i was going give me that bike you know so then i went and rode it and i was like man i'm nearly dying on this thing i was just struggling i can't imagine it being that bad after no well i I can't either you know i just completely stuffed it and uh, i know what i know exactly what i've done wrong now and it kept feeling like it was bottoming but it was um it it wasn't it was like hydraulic locking in a way because i had way too much compression damping in the shock oh yeah and it kept feeling like it was bottoming so i kept going harder and but it's 
it wasn't and it's not it's easy to measure a fork for bottoming but it's not easy to measure the little shock you know anyway so i've learned a lot and the last two laps the roughest two laps i did i was only supposed to do one and i could tell that i was having a good time and did a much better time and and you know i came in to swap the transponder he said do you want to do another one yeah so i just went out and have another one and and i loved it again i was back you know and it was so good to ride the bike set up properly again so um yeah that's where i finished i finished on a good note which was much more fun than battling around and feeling sketchy like you wanted to crash every second corner you know so uh, yeah it was great fun in the end and we had we had a good time yeah, well, I I enjoyed riding it. I'd love to ride it again and and try and uh, yeah have like a yeah. Well, a you and Sam, it, it. Was yeah. it was so funny. I was telling um, well, I'm I not. was telling Laurie about it, you know, and he was laughing because I said, oh, you know, especially when Sam, you were injured when you rode, so it was a bit harder and a few things. Um, but yeah, it was well, hilarious. even still, that's what I was gonna say. Like, I was hurt. Like, I couldn't. I wouldn't have rode. Like, I only did it just to do it like I had to ride the bike. Yeah. But, I mean, I still did, like, a few laps before my shoulder really stopped working. Yeah, yeah. And it was good. Yeah. So, yeah, it was yeah. super cool. Yeah, it's got a lot of potential. Um, it's going to be interesting to see if, um, you know, I honestly believe that it's got a lot going for it. And, you I know, do too, yeah. You know, out of all these years of suspension, we, we can go back to damper rods, you know, then we went to uh, the big deal was was when we went to cartridge. You know, like Honda's '86 went to cartridge, and you know, then we went upside down. And the first ones of those were shockers, but you know, the everybody thought they wanted them, so it was all that thing that happens in uh, selling stuff. Um, you know, and we've had you know cartridge uh, twin chamber and cone valve, and you know, going back to the TDR forks, like I've got cone valve and i've got uh twin chamber um wp i've got all this stuff i'm trying it all and the funny thing about um the tdr <clears throat> is um it shouldn't work you know it shouldn't work and there'd, there'd be a million suspension guys out there saying oh the guy's lost his marbles you know but going way back you know we it all kind of started because um a mate of mine, Miles Davis, came up to our farm. We had a moto track at the time, and uh, we had a TDR just for fun, just a, as a sort of a farm bike, you know. And um, Miles was on a 360 Husky or something back then, you know, and he was flying around. I thought, I'm going to chase him down on this trail bike. And and they're gutless, you know. They feel like they're tied to a tree. But the, <laughs> the suspension was amazing on the fork, you know. And so coming into corners, I had so much traction – and I could really mean so much, you know, coming into corners. I'm going, man, it's unbelievable. And I just remembered that. And then I had um, Ben Burrell um, come and ride for us, you know, and he was a, he was unknown, but he was a good little rider. And he was on a, and his old man was a good mate of mine, Fudge. And um, he, you know, he kept saying, my son's flying, my son's flying. And we used to see it all the time with everyone else, you know, but his son was only maybe, I don't know, 14 maybe at the time, but he was riding a CRF 150 and he's telling us how good he is and and I know he'd be good because Fudge is, um, you know, he's a realist, he's telling the way it is and I go, yeah, I know he's good, but man, he's too young for our team, you know. And um, anyway, so then he, um, we we just go, let's let's put him under the pump and test him and we go, yeah, this kid's good, you know. Um, let's do it, let's do it. And, and we've never ever had, you know, 
anyone on a YZ85 or anything. It's not us, you know. We we had an off-road team and it was just proper adult people, you know. And uh, we go, what are we going to put him on? And so we go, well, he didn't weigh anything. He was like 50 kilos or something less. And so we go, okay, YZ125, at least it's a proper bike, you know. And, and so he was pretty tiny, this kid. And so we limited the the shock you know that we put a linkage on it or something and we lowered it a bit and i just has a hunch he's the smartest kid ever you know and uh just amazing like he's a farmer kid he's combine harvesters when he was a little kid and just all the farmers loved him he was mechanical he could rebuild four stroke he was like the freak kid you know anyway um so i said okay this is the deal the most important thing is that you don't kid yourself that's that's number one you know so but i said i've got this hunch that this fork could be really good for you because the problem with with light bikes and any bike the the relationship between the unsprung weight and the sprung weight is a is a really big deal you know and if they could make wheels half the weight and tires of they are our bikes would handle twice as good you know yeah. so when you know a, a yz125 wheel weighs the same as a yz450 wheel right it's, it's no different but the bike the mass is less so when you hit things they want to deflect more because that's the way it is like if that, it was the queen mary and it had these little toothpicks underneath it well you're not going to move the queen mary the toothpicks are going to move you know yeah, yeah. so it's it's part of it you know so anyway i just knew that you know they're, they're sketchy and they're deflective and we're trying to pick our way through trees so we don't need you know too much movement and we want confidence we're going where we want to go not where deflection is going to put you you know so anyway i had a hunch this might be good and so I put it, um, I, I gave it to him. He, his old man was clever. And I said, here it is. You do it, you know, like get some bushings made up because you're sleeving down an upside down fork into this conventional and just try it, you know. Anyway, he came back a week or two later and he goes, yeah, GB, it's, you know, it's awesome. And I go, right, so you test it probably, yeah. I've swapped it back and forth three or four times and every track I'm quicker with the TDR. And I go, well, there you go all right that's good you know and, and he's not kidding himself because he's he, he's like that you know so anyway he comes out and he's um he's in the he's in the juniors in the off-road sort of stuff and um yeah he comes out and just smashes them and and uh anyway he won juniors for a couple of years and he went and did uh, i don't know if he did any australian motocross champs on it but he did new south wales motocross and stuff like that with this crazy front end you know but anyway he loved it he just thought it was the best thing ever and then then we had um jess gardner come onto the team yeah and um and we went mm, it could be good for her too you know and uh anyway so we set her up with it and she just started going unreal and you know dominating and um loving it and we did proof you know we did back and forward and all that in fact we had this craziest thing uh where ADB came to our farm with, uh, with um, you know, girls, and they were saying how fast are these, um, how fast are these girls really, you know, like on a on this sort of a natural train sort of a moto track, but quite technical, you know, stuff. And um, the editor was going to write against them, and you know, write it down. And I think we had uh, oh, um, Tory Dare maybe, and uh, there was there was two moto girls, and there was um, Jess and uh Gemma wilson yeah. so they sort of had two moto girls and two enduro girls and um anyway no one really jess was just into the game you know 
and um, anyway, they all got heaps of practice on the track, and it was awesome conditions. Everything was great. And um, anyway, they're flying around, and we we did a time them over two laps, and then we stop them. The first thing we asked them was, "How'd you go?" Because if they said, oh, "I ran over a boom, fell off," and you go, "Okay," but you know, none of them did, and they all had a time. You know, and anyway, um, Jess Gardner smashed them, and um, I I think it was Tori. Um, and uh, she had a motocross, a YZF two fifty or something like that, you know. And um, and anyway, she, I think she was annoyed by the whole thing. Like this isn't wrong. That just doesn't look right. And it was you could tell she was just like, what the hell? What do you mean this girl beat us? You know. And she didn't just beat us. I think she had like five seconds or something. You know. Anyway, then she comes over and she said can i can i have a ride on this bike and uh, we always wanted them to you know to have the wr right over the yz because you know they were, they were all all the yz's at that time were electric um, were non-electric start so you know they yeah, fall down they, yeah. they had trouble they'd lose a lap you know trying to start them and we go yeah but you know there's merit in the other one it's a bit heavier but it's um it's good you know it's got a bit more flywheel and stuff like that anyway um so she goes out to do a lap like and she only does like a third of a lap and she comes across and she goes time me on this so went right oh so she hasn't even done a lap she's used to her bike she jumped on this bike and she did two laps and then she smashed um jess's time by like another three or four seconds so she went like seven or eight seconds over two laps faster on a bike she hadn't even done one lap on anyway and oh and then you know the first thing we asked her how'd you go yeah good you know what do you think of the forks oh not much that's all she said you know she just didn't want to accept it you know it was sort of funny and then when they told her the time she's like oh my god you know anyway it eh? was pretty wild so but they went on for years and so pretty soon into that i went i'm just gonna i'm gonna do it you know and so i started doing it also the axle was in a slightly different spot and i think it 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 help the Yamaha a little bit too in in another way you know anyway I kept doing it I was going man this thing just does not wear you out and I used to you know I was doing all the off-roads then and I just pretty much dominated them and you know sometimes I'd have a cross country on Saturday three hours of oh hours was less two or two and a half or something but still physical and um you know I felt fresh as the daisy compared to the other guys the other guys say I don't even think I can ride tomorrow and I'm going yeah really it just doesn't wear you out you know and and honestly i think i ran that thing in the yamaha for like 10 years and people were just going you're nuts i go have you tried it you know and i i was always amazed that no one went you know you can go you can go to the wreckers and buy a tdr complete front end for 200 bucks yeah you know but no one tried it and you know the, the, they all think i'm that good a rider or i'm trying to make it harder for myself i'm i'm not you know <laughs> yeah. and yeah, I, it's just part of like this yeah. unicorn mystique and i bought you know i bought some suspension i go yeah it's good but i think i still prefer that i kept back and you know i try stuff all the time i mean i never stop but there's not a lot wrong with them you know so it's um and and over the years what was also funny was um we tried to make them a little bit better because they feel weird they feel really they feel really active but they feel like they need more rebound yeah yeah but if you give them more rebound they sort of don't work and 
anyway we had different you know through the years of race team forever we had different suspension people looking after us and we tried with them and we could never get them as good as standard you had to go to a heavier spring and they were really critical on the oil viscosity crazy fork different than everything else but a lot of merit but i know i mean i've been confident like for years with the guy the guy has definitely lost his marbles but it is crazy that you know you can win a lot of races and and no one goes maybe i should try that you know i mean i've had friends riding bikes and you know even recently um one of my mates uh, his kids bro and and he's you know been riding forever and he's got uh you know million dollar forks in his bike and he rode mine and just went wow it's got a lot of merit <laughs> <laughs> so i don't know maybe we should change the subject on that bloody forks and the yeah <laughs> the tdr is uh yeah it's hard but anyway anyone who's tried it knows they work all right but yeah they definitely do well hey we've uh we've almost done four hours mate no yeah why didn't you warn me what that's what we do <laughs> the pet there will be a lot okay. of people. There will be a lot of people that are very stoked to hear you talk. Oh, about cool! Them. Yeah, sorry it took so. Long. I didn't realise. Nah, hey, yeah. that's perfect. It must have been having a bit of fun. So nah, that's good. I've thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, oh, good. I, we definitely. There's so much stuff we didn't talk about. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But no worries. That's only natural. We'll do it yeah, again. Yeah. I am um, so stoked we finally did it. Hopefully, thanks, um, mate. Hopefully yeah. we can have a ride this weekend. I'd be yeah, pretty stoked. Yeah, that would be good. And uh, let's do it. We'll do it again. Good on you, Joe. Thanks. Cheers. Thanks, mate. Are you serious? Goes quick, eh? It's the vortex. Oh, my God. You should have told me to shut up.